and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. So extremely excited to be talking to Professor Gerald Horn about his latest book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Cornell West calls Dr. Gerald Horn one of the great historians of our time. How about that? Before we get started with today's show, I just want to give people the chance to learn that Tuesday, September 29th, Matt Taibbi and I will be playing one of his legendary drinking games live. Do you know that we do this sometimes? We watch the debates and we play one of his drinking games. And that's a way that you guys can watch them too without suffering in silence or isolation or sobriety. I just kind of, you can watch the debates with us and not drink, but if you want that extra something, you can play one of the drinking games. And so to do that, just go to youtube.com slash the Katie Halper Show to this live stream that we'll be doing. And again, we'll be watching the debates, so you get to watch us react to the debates, but you also get to watch the debates because we do a little split screen thing. The debates are Tuesday, September 29th at 9 p.m. We're going to be starting our live stream coverage at 8.30 p.m. And you can find that on youtube.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Now, of course, if you're listening to this podcast after the 29th, you can go back and find it on YouTube. As always, I invite you to rate and review this show. And please consider become Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. You can contribute as little as a dollar a month and help make this show possible. If you would like to have more content, as in extra episodes, then you can support at the $5 level. Patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Thanks so much. All right, and we're live. Everyone, welcome to the Katie Halper Show. So excited to be here. If it's a Sunday night, uh, you're probably going to see me and, fingers crossed, Jack Allison. Welcome, Hi there, Jack. everyone. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. It's a little hot. It's a little hot. I thought it was going to be colder. It's, it's been hot over here, too. You know, maybe it's just unpleasant nationwide. Maybe, maybe there's it. a nationwide case of unpleasantness. That's yeah, true. Just, just unpleasant. That's all. That sounds kind of what the doctor, what the meteorologist diagnosed. Yeah, I know. It's about it's about time, right? Isn't about it time. about time we had a bad uh, something a bad happened bad this year? Yeah, something bad yeah. for once for once this year. Yeah, yeah. Um, want to make sure everyone, by the way, if you're here, you're at the right place. You've uh, uh, outstanding taste. Please like this, like this, like not just enjoy, which we know you're doing, but like you know, it on the in the thing on YouTube. Do the little. Yeah. Press the button. That means like don't mm-hmm. just actually like it. You know, right. don't Although just enjoy we, yeah. it. Right. That's fine. But it's not, you know, whatever. That's OK. It's not necessary. It's not, it's not the necessary. Fi- the, thumb, the thumb icon is necessary. Right. In fact, Very if, we, necessary. if we had to choose. No, yeah. you know what? I'm such a good uh, person. I'd rather you not suffer. Right. I'd rather, I'd rather they actually enjoy, enjoy the show. And not do the, the thumbs up. But yeah. But after that, I'd definitely rather they do both. And then after that, I'd rather they well, if, if you're enjoying like it, it, then but, why don't you why you should just do it? You know what I mean? It's rude yeah. not to it's just, really. now you're real now you offended Jack. This yeah. isn't about now me. I'm this actually getting kind Jack. of annoyed about it. Now so Jack is annoyed. Now you and like now, it. Yeah. Like this. Like it. Be on the right side of history, be on the right side of podcasting and yeah. live streaming. And just do it. And mm-hmm. um, how's my sound? Is my sound okay, more or less? Sounds fine to me. I got an AC in the background. Okay, cool. All right, guys, we're gonna we're gonna talk. You know, Jack and I can talk about lot, all mat- matters of things, all sorts of things. But tonight, we're gonna start off with an interview. And I'm so excited. I've been fortunate to interview. Oh, and share this, guys. Share right now. Another thing that you got to stop doing. Don't stop anything. Keep watching. Keep liking. Keep sharing. Yeah. And particularly share this link and subscribe 
In fact, I'm going to go on Twitter because people sometimes um, there should be a, a specific Gerald Horn like um, update notification right. because I know that there are people who are so excited because they've told me they love whenever I have um, Dr. Horn on. So I'm just going to re just going to do another little tweet out reminding people. And also if yeah. you guys are on the Facebooks or the tweets, just do that. Just get it, get it out there. Everyone I'll, I'll send one yeah. out right now too. Yeah, send that right now. Yeah. See, this is the type of stuff we like to do before the guest comes on. Yeah. Cause it's a little bit of housekeeping. It's housekeeping. Know? Yeah. I sometimes say house cleaning instead of housekeeping, but it is house. It's, it's all the same thing. It's all the same. You know, really It's maintenance work at the end of the day. Right. Not really. Uh Oh, did I freeze? Let me close all my other programs. Remember Jack when I kept freezing and you basically hosted the show alone? You know, was, you know that. Let, we, I hope, I hope we don't get a repeat. But you know, but you, but you know I can you jump in if you if you need it. That's the thing. It was kind of your. I like to consider you Job. <laughs> you know, so I, I yeah, I am. You know, I I do shoulder quite a lot, and yeah. you know, it's you that said it, but you know, I've thought it many times. You thought of it, yeah, many I just times, had to many, be, yeah. many times. Yeah, yeah. and I'm you're putting you're putting voice to it, and so that, yeah, you know, from, I think that's from your nice. lips to God's ears to Katie Helper's, <laughs> from your brain to God's ears right. to Katie Helper's lips. Yeah, yeah. I think that's how it all always hopefully right. goes. Um, so okay, everyone tweeted it out. I um I don't believe Dr. Horn is on um social media or he's at least he's not on Twitter, which I wouldn't be either. Although maybe you know what I would do? He's so important that maybe he should be on social media, but like you or I should run it for him. Just right. Just get e we should just ask him to constantly email us and, and then send we'll, little yeah, messages, yeah, you know. Yeah. That'd be nice. Yeah, yeah, that'd be nice. I, I got enough posting already on my one stupid fucking account, though. I don't I don't want to do it. Yeah. All right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want to taint his his wisdom. Yeah, exactly. With our, with our Michigas. With my stupid bullshit. Yeah. Um, OK, so I'm just going to read you a little bit about who our guest is, because off the I mean, I can tell you without even looking at it. He is a um, a a treasure, a na an international treasure. I think he'd be perhaps politically offended if I said national treasure, because <laughs> that's not how we see the world through nation states and borders, um, sure. colonialist um, uh, definitions. But uh, he is the John J. and Rebecca Moores Professor of African American History at the University of Houston. Um, he's a prolific scholar and he's published more than three dozen books. I think he's up to more than 40, though, but I'm not sure I have to count it. But um, it's one of those things. It's like the second you get an iPod or an Apple Apple product, it's like it's obsolete. Well, it's not like that because this stuff isn't obsolete. But it's like the second you get one of his books, as soon as you finish it, he has a new one coming out. <laughs> so, in fact, I have an update before I finish this one. I learned about another one coming out. So very, very prolific. And um, this book, it, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism and Capitalists in the Long 16th Century is very, very, very good. Um, he's also an expert in um, Paul Robeson, uh, Du Bois, political history, um, has written about Japan, about the Philippines. Uh, so uh, let's just welcome him on. Without any further ado, Dr. Gerald Horn. Hello. Hello, hello. How are you? It's all good. All good. I'm so uh, welcome to the show, and um, thank you so much. Uh, how how often are you writing, by the way? Like during the course of an average day, do you just constantly well, do it, or? I'm afraid to say the pandemic has slowed me down tremendously. Really? Mm. Oh yeah. It's um, 
mean, I have this book coming out on boxing in December, but since I haven't been to, I haven't been to an archive since March. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a novelist. I don't just make things up. I have right. to go to archives and dig out material and then turn it into a book. So I haven't been to an archive since March. So I'm, I'm way behind. My next book might not come out until 2022. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. So everyone can catch up a little at least. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God for small favors. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I didn't even. So are, do you do? Is it in principle that would you ever do something on on archives that are digitized? Or is it just that if well, something were digitized, it would probably already have been. You know, I'm, that's what I'm reduced to now. I'm, I'm reading a lot of stuff online, but it's really not the same. Yeah. You, you really pardon the expression but it's the difference between phone sex and actual sex. So, <laughs> yeah. And trying to do research online is like phone sex. I mean, it's okay, but it, it's right. not the real thing. Right. No disrespect. Not that, n not any negative commentary on sex work, of course. Yeah. Just, just for on, saying that if, you know. if, if the, if the goal is actual human on human in person. Yes, I agree. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It sounds, that sounds like a convincing uh, parallel. That's all yeah. I'll say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's okay. That, yeah, I didn't even think about that because, but yeah, I guess are certain libraries like getting pandemic proofed or? Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> like, would you have to go in and try? I mean, if you could travel, let's say, like, uh, they're all closed. They're um, all closed. They're just all closed. Okay. They're all closed. Um, and hopefully they'll be open by June. Wow. Even where you are in Texas, I thought this would be maybe one of the good things about you know that state. Take advantage are, of their all the archives are closed. It's, wow! Uh, and even if it were open, I, I would be reluctant to go yeah. there. Yeah, because that means that they're not observing the protocols that of other course. archives are observing. Right. Um. Right. So, but aren't there? There must be some things that that are online that you would write about that you wouldn't be able to get to. No. Like, is well, there I, I will say this, you know, I, I'm, I'm writing this, uh, I'm preparing this book on Texas in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And I will say this, that because of being in lockdown, I've been reading more dissertations right. and master's theses online that I probably would not have looked at otherwise. But all that means is that it'll be a very big book. Uh, right. I'm not sure it's good or bad. So the primary source stuff... Well, wait. Is what kind of um, dissertations are you reading? Is this as a primary as primary sources or a secondary? Well, they're well, they're basically secondary sources. Right. And, okay. you know, reading all because you know the, these these graduate students they write in these very narrow on these very narrow right. subjects. So that's what I'm reading. I'm reading these very narrow master's theses and dissertations. Right. And you know it's better than nothing. Right. But it's it's not the same. You should write. You could do something on the history of Texan academic like Texan books, right? <laughs> Texas, don't they write a lot of it? Texas and and Florida, oh, yeah. two states you'd really not want to be designing a lot of a. Uh, oh yeah. yeah, well, there's a lot. You know, Texas has a very distinctive history. I mean, yeah, it, it's seceded from Mexico uh, to be an independent country, like Hawaii was one of the few independent countries before joining the United States or being frog marched into the United States in the right. case of Hawaii. Right. And it seceded from Mexico because Mexico had moved to abolish slavery. They wanted to continue slavery. And Texas, during its brief independence, was a major slave-owning state. I mean, a lot of the Africans brought to Cuba were basically brought on Texas vessels. You had the Lone Star flag of Texas off the coast of Angola, off the coast of Brazil, 
But finally, they couldn't take the pressure from the British abolitionists and their allies in Haiti. And so they crawled into the Union of the United States in 1945, where they've been ever since, despite uh, frequent yelps about right. seceding again. Right. <laughs> yeah, th the threats of seceding. It's kind of like when the NYPD threatened to go on a, a work slowdown uh, when they were mad at, at uh, de Blasio. <laughs> Right. We're going, you know, it's like, oh, please, whatever you do, Texas, don't do that. <laughs> or please, uh, NYPD, don't don't uh, yeah. lower the don't number of tickets working. you're writing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at, at its most at, to be the most charitable to NYPD. We'll yeah, really. just talk about ticket writing. Um, so, well, this well, this book is really excellent and it's so related to what's happening now in an interesting way. Can you tell us about how you started working on it? Um, and uh, if you had a sense it was going to be so, I guess, I mean, this is a larger question we can get into later, which is the relationship between history and current events and all those questions of, you know, and historiography and and the lessons from the past and applying it to the, to the present. But um, when did it, how did you start thinking about the, working on this book in the first place? Well, that's a long story, um, but let me plunge into the middle of the story which is that about six years ago, I published a book on 1776. And it attempted to revise the traditional idea of the founding of the United States because it basically didn't make any sense to me. Because historians for the longest have known that the black population did not side with George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison at all in their revolt against British rule because they had reason to believe that a purposeful revolt was extending slavery in the face of a growing abolitionist movement in London. And so I wanted to at attack 1776 from that perspective. But then after I did that, uh, if you look at the 1776 book, it really begins in 1688 with the so-called glorious revolution in England, uh, which in my telling of the story leads to an explosion of the slave trade because basically to that point, the African slave trade had been under the thumb of the monarch, but the merchants went in on the action. And so they clipped the wings of the monarch, which leads to an explosion of the slave trade, driving slave enslaved Africans in North America in particular. And as I tell the story, um, that provides kindling for 1776. So that led to a book on the 17th century, which came out, I guess, in 2018. Then after I did the 17th century, um, I figured I need to look at the 16th century, which leads us to the book in hand, the dawning of the apocalypse, the roots of slavery, white supremacy, settler colonialism, and capitalism in the long 16th century. This is basically a post-1492 book going up to the English uh, settling, quote-unquote, what they call Virginia after the so-called Virgin Queen, Queen Elizabeth in 1607. But it starts a lot earlier, right? I mean, like... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Can, I mean, yeah. Ostensibly, it's 1492, but actually, uh, I'm trying to understand why we're sitting here speaking English, right. considering the fact that in the 1500s, this was a minor monarchy on the fringes of Europe. Mm -hmm. And so in order to understand that, I have to look at a lot of Western European history. And so in some ways, I go back to uh, 1095, the onset of the Crusades, right. where you have Western European Christendom deciding they want to reclaim what they call the Holy Land under the aegis of Muslim powers, uh, which in my telling of the story leads to a certain kind of, kind of othering, which is then transferred to Native Americans and people of African descent, seeing them as an alien force. 
And then another pivotal date in my story is 1291 in England, when London expels the Jewish population altogether. But not only do they expel the Jewish population, but the kinds of tropes that are used to disfigure rhetorically the Jewish population. That is to say that uh, they have horns, they have tails, they have an odor, they're not allowed to engage in miscegenation. Well, those are transferred almost wholly to the black population once England gets started with the slave trade. And what's interesting as well is that uh, once you have the so-called Protestant upsurge in Europe post-1517 with Martin Luther, uh, 95 theses on the door of the church. You might recall that from your so-called Western Civ classes. <laughs> yeah. uh, Protestantism takes uh, London by storm. You may have heard the story about King Henry VIII uh, wanting to divorce, but uh, actually what it does, it leads him to uh, pillage and plunder Catholic property. Right. And then once he adopts Protestant faith, the Protestant faith is the state religion, this brings him into conflict with the Catholic powers, he then makes an alliance with the alleged enemy of Christendom, which are the Muslims. That's one of the key reasons why we're sitting here speaking English, because of his alliance with the Muslim powers right. against the Catholics. And then the Catholic, the Spanish Catholics, they had a religious qualification for settlement. You could be a black conquistador or conqueror as long as you profess Catholicism. Right. London took a different position. You didn't have to be a Protestant to be a settler under the Union Jack. In fact, if you look at the history of Maryland, it was mostly settled by uh, Catholics right. from England. He moved, the L Londoners or England moves to a pan-European project, which morphs into whiteness, which morphs into white supremacy. That is to say that the Jewish population, which had been scorned and expelled by 1291, uh, or then those who are remaining are embraced because they need warm bodies to confront the Native Americans and restrain the Africans. And of course, the Irish, who had been in conflict with London for centuries, and that conflict was turbocharged once London adopts the Protestant faith and many of the Irish stick with Catholicism. Uh, London even embraces Irish as settlers and Scots. Of course, there had been this long time, long term conflict between England and Scotland which is going to probably lead, I would say, in the next decade to Scottish independence. And so this, in sum, is the story that I tell in this new book. It's interesting because the huge focus actually of this book, which is the kind of the definition of or the creation of whiteness. Yes. And what's interesting is that it always reminds me of how, you know, after 9-11, like the first hate crime victim was, a, I believe, a Sikh man mm -hmm. a first mm -hmm. hate crime victim in the united states you know after 9 11 and you know there's a total flattening of uh sikh identity muslim hindu and it's just so ironic because there are wars mm. like absolute like right. you know there's partition there is brutal brutality war over these distinctions and differences that because of the way history geography culture politics works it's like if only those distinctions were remotely known here, not that we right. want the stuff that happens over there here, but it's just so ironic that, you know, these the othering creates this monolith that in the case of what, of what I'm talking about, you know, is the, the, is the bad monolith, right, 
um, denied of any rights and life, the right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, obviously. And then on the other hand, you have the flip version, which is the whiteness, which again, all these f these fights and these divisions that meant so much in another context for per political purposes are now flattened into another identity that gives grants you all sorts of rights. Well, you know, what's interesting is that you have all of these conflicts in Europe, uh, English versus Irish, English versus Scott, ultimately British versus German, German versus Pole, Pole versus Russian, Russian versus Ukrainian, Northern Italian versus Southern Italian, Serb versus Croat. I mean, I could go on right, for right. an hour in this regard. But all of a sudden, in a rebranding exercise that would make Madison Avenue blush, once they cross the Atlantic, they adopt a new identity, which is whiteness, right. <laughs> which is right. quite curious, to put it mildly. And obviously, this unites them on a common platform. It also contributes, I would say, to class collaboration, not only to ethnic right. reconciliation, because it leads to a certain kind of alliance between poor and richer Europeans, oftentimes on a common platform of taking the land of the Native Americans and doling it out between and amongst them. And that kind of class collaboration, I think, sheds light on the election of November 2016, when so-called billionaire received 63 million votes. It's imprecise, if not impossible, for 63 million to be part of the 1% in a country of 330 million. And I was just reading before we came on the new bombshell investigative story in the New York Times. They uncovered some of Mr. Trump's tax returns mm -hmm. showing that uh, in 2016, 2017, he paid hardly anything. And right. I don't think that this is going to be the killer story with regard to Trump. I mean, I, I thought the Hollywood access tape was the killer story. Nope. Yeah. But I think. What it reminds us, this fact that many of his base are paying more taxes than he does. Right. <laughs> Even though he's, supposed, I mean, if you look at the, these figures in the story, they're mind numbing. The, the kinds of figures that he's dealing with, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars at a failed swoop. And so what it reminds us of, we, we need an explanation. Uh, we need an explanation that goes beyond just pointing to Fox News right. and Limbaugh, because mm -hmm. you know, I have, like other black people, I have Fox News as part of my cable package, but it doesn't prevent black people from voting against Trump nine to one or, you know, Rush Limbaugh is on my AM radio, right. apparently has little or no influence on the black community. So we, we need another kind of explanation. And I think that this deep dive into history uh, that's reflected in this book, which talks about class collaboration, which has been a founding principle of the United States. That is to say, poor and richer Europeans collaborating across class lines for their mutual interests, because we should be clear, many Europeans did quite well in North America. There's no doubt about it. You would be naive to try to deny that. Of course, many did not, uh, but it's, it's like in ancient Mexico where you put a carrot in front of the nose of the donkey get the, mm -hmm. get the donkey to pull the wagon. Yeah. And now the donkey never gets to bite the carrot, but it keeps on pulling the wagon. So, right. you know, the, the prospect of right. gaining this wealth is enough to lubricate the path towards class collaboration. And even if Mr. Trump loses on November 3rd, and of course, you all have heard, heard of the talk of the coup, 
right. the legal coup that's in motion. But even if he loses, we're still going to have to deal with this phenomenon. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, um, I've heard you and you there. I mean, there are all these different kind of I, I heard you on the um, good friend of the show, big fans of the Gray Zone and big fans of Aaron Mate's. And I heard oh, you talking about Aaron and he's been on the show. Um and it's interesting because you are someone who I think is, you know, well, how, how do you identify? And then we'll we'll get back to the your, the the book because it's so good, but it's all related. How, how do you identify politically and ideologically and intellectually? Well, uh, I would I would use multiple labels. Yeah, <laughs> I would identify myself as a socialist, as yeah. a Marxist, as a progressive black nationalist, as a Pan Africanist, as a humanitarian. Uh, as a feminist, uh, I could go on. Yeah, no, that, no. So you you have an interesting like you have a take that I I think I I've heard you criticize a lot of socialists for being I would say what's the word not a historical what's a what's the, is there a race version of a historical like uh, a a non but you don't want to say non race based because it's not that's a construct but so non class redu reductionist class reductionist people right. always use. yeah class yeah. reductionist yeah um but it does seem like you know I, you 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 pointed out you said you know you listen to Rush Limbaugh and it doesn't penetrate into your brain but isn't it true that I mean given given history given the founding of this country right given certain material realities and of course ideological constructions it makes sense right that that a rush limbaugh will interact differently with your brain mm -hmm. your history professor um you're a leftist than it would with someone who's not that and and, and i guess it's like how do we how do we look at that in a way that is not and i don't mean this in a kumbaya can't we all just get a long way but it's like there seems to be a moral question of like whose fault it is, who's like what to the person who's seduced by Trump, but doesn't get rich under Trump. There's like there's a twofold question. One is like it's kind of a moral question and of, of, of ethics and morality. But then there's the kind of strategic question, which I do think actually links back into ethics and morality if we think that one of the goals is defeating Trumpism. But um, does that that was like too much of a statement, I think. Well, no, I mean, right. first of all. <laughs> It's not. I was. I was. I was trying to refer to an entire black community, not just myself. I right. Mean, you have you know, black hospital workers. And sure, of course. Yeah, workers. of course. Right. They have Limbaugh on their AM radio and doesn't seem to penetrate right. the brain either. So I think that that's a useful uh, way to look at this Trump phenomenon. But I don't think it's it's really sufficient. Yeah. I think it, it reminds me of the way that historians deal with slavery in the United States. It's sort of technological determinism. That is to say, but for the invention of the cotton gin at the end right. of the mm -hmm. end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, slavery would have disappeared. The track, the, the cotton gin was invented and slavery took off like a jet. Well, I think that's technological determinism. And I think it's sort of technological determinism to just say radio and cable sure. television as well. I mean, I think, I mean, in, in 1991, 55% of Euro-American voters in Louisiana voted for a Klansman and a Nazi, David Duke, for governor. There was no Fox News right. in 1991. I don't think there was Rush Limbaugh either, although there might have been right-wing right yeah. talk radio. So yeah. I, I just don't sure. feel that there's yes. a sufficient explanation. I mean, I think it's useful to throw it into the discussion, right. but in some ways it's an evasion. It's a way to evade history. I see, it's right. A, 
it's a way to evade these difficult problems that we're facing. Yeah. You know, I, I've been paying a lot of attention, like many people, to the uh, outgrowth of this reaction to this planned coup in light of the Barton Gelman article in The Atlantic, <laughs> where he talks about how some of the Republicans may ignore the popular will in states like Arizona and Florida and say there was all fraud and send electors to Washington in January to cast their votes for Trump. Right. And then he'll be uh, reelected. And so there's a lot of angst and anxiety about this, which I totally understand. But I, I really don't think, I think if people had a better understanding of history of this country and less of an idealistic in a negative sense uh, conception of history of this country, they wouldn't necessarily be surprised. As right. a matter of fact, they could anticipate it and perhaps take methods and means to try to forestall it. Mm -hmm. Right. And now see it as like the aber aberration and the exceptional moment that it, it's framed to be. As right. Well. The idea that like Trump is so uniquely bad uh, uh, is number one, like a historical, but also like makes it hard for people to predict the like obvious things that are coming. Kind of like, you know, this thing about Trump, you know, saying that he might not leave and they might work with the electors and everything like that. I'm like, yeah, this is the kind of thing you could predict if you've seen like the 2000 election or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like right. if you paid it attention a little bit and don't think Republicans have like newly become evil because of Donald Trump. Right. Yeah. Here, here. Yeah. I, you know what I think I was referring to? So I, which we can get back to later is, is, is this argument that's like that just uh, an argument where people say, well, why aren't black people um, it, Donald Trump's racism? This is a little bit of a different one where it's like, if racism explains, if economic anxiety and racism explain um, Trump's rise, then why aren't white, why aren't black, poor black people voting for Trump too? Which is a separate thing, and that's mm -hmm. that's a case where people just don't get how obviously, like if you're if you are someone who is not white rhetoric will work differently. And that's, again, there are variations. Like there's the black hospital worker, there's the black professor, there's the white hospital worker, the white professor, all that stuff. But there is this weird, I think, liberal anti-leftist argument that's like, well, if we're just economic anxiety, then why aren't other people who are poor, why aren't they voting for the racists? It's like, well, there are lots of reasons that that's happening. Um, well, well, I mean, I think there's, there's a fair amount of solidarity in yeah. the black community that goes back to the era of slavery, for right. example. And it goes back to the era of what could be called the creation of blackness when you get all of these different African ethnicities from Angola and Southwest Africa heading thousands of miles north to, say, Senegal on the bulge of Africa. And then they cross the Atlantic and they're given this new identity of blackness. It's just like you were referring to South Asians who are all sort of squashed into this identity, even though there are antagonisms between and amongst them. It's like Sikhs and Hindus, for example. Right. And I think that the crucible of cruelty that helps to create slavery then helps to forge a certain kind of solidarity amongst the... It's just like, I mean, as you may know, I mean, <laughs> I guess this still happens, but certainly with people of my generation, uh, particularly if you're on a campus, uh, a, a majority non-black campus, if you see another black person, you speak to them or you say hello. I mean, it's part of this, you're sort of checking in right, <laughs> to, yeah. to make sure 
that the mob isn't coming. Right. <laughs> and so there's a certain amount of solidarity uh, involved, and I think that that carries over. Now, obviously, since the, what I call the Compromise of 1954, that is to say this ethical decision to move away from the more egregious aspects of Jim Crow, uh, that helped to create uh, more class divisions in the black community. Right. Um, but even, I would dare say, that it's more likely that a black billionaire would vote against Trump than a non-black billionaire for example. Yeah, of course, right. I think that's true, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that may, yeah. I, I guess it's just, I, that that makes sense, it's solidaristic. It's also the idea that, you know, the sense that even if, I mean, Trump doesn't overtly say, you know, black people aren't, are not, unlike the 1980s Trump where they were, they're not a particular feature of his of his um of his vision you know they were the way they were in like the you know the central park five right when he wanted to reinstate instate the death penalty right um he's been more muslim mexican based that's his um area of expertise now um but i think that of course it makes sense that you're that one's uh a, a solidaristic or self-interest or just familiarity where people like trump lead to um in a very visceral way uh, you know, can also explain that. Also, I think that there is, even though this hasn't broken through into the mainstream, there's a lingering perception in the black community that part of Trump's para, uh, popularity has to do with this kind of backlash against Obama. Right. Mm -hmm. That is to say, it's not a, as if Obama was governing as a leftist. Right. But if the only. Very yeah. fact that he was black, that yeah. seems to be. Because as I tell the story, um, it, it's part of helping to recover this repressed memory syndrome of a time when, for example, you had a black majority of the enslaved in South Carolina and a goodly number of the precincts of, of Dixie. And there was always this lurking fear of a slave revolt, right. which, of course, materializes in what we call Haiti, 1791 to 1804. Uh, which terrifies and terrorizes the slave owners in Dixie. And I think that that perception that uh, this is a backlash against Obama also feeds into a companion conception, which is that if you're black and drive a Mercedes, it doesn't mean that the police right. are going to give you a pass. Mm -hmm. Anything, they're more likely to pull you over. Right. And so that also helps to force the certain kind of solidarity. Now, speaking of Trump, you might have noticed that uh, his platinum plan that he unveiled in Atlanta, the so-called Black Mecca, just a few days ago. Right. And of course, you know, he, he's coming up with all sorts of plans. I mean, he's going to send seniors a $200 debit card so they can buy drugs within the next few weeks, supposedly. The platinum plan. He should send them some of his steak knives. Remember he stole <laughs> knives, Trump's knives? Yeah. Well, no, th this, this will not be a, a voucher to attend bankrupt Trump University. Oh, that would have been another piece of advice. It'll actually me, be though. somewhat useful, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to call for Juneteenth to be a national holiday. There are anti-Klan measures, anti-lynching measures. This is the platinum plan uh, that Trump has just unveiled. I'm sure he'll talk about it at a debate on Tuesday. But it, it's really a reflection of the fact that if he can get the black vote uh, against him to crawl from 90% to say 86%, that could be quite crucial mm -hmm. in a number of different swing states. And then 
I think that's all he's really trying to do. Or alternatively, by hammering a Biden in the crime bill, you can get people to stay at home. He's going to do that because he did that, as I always point out, because it was so, I mean, watching him go after Clinton for, which God knows he deserves to be gone after for this, but watching him, of all people, go after Clinton for the super predator statement, Mm-hmm. As if this guy, which he did during a debate. And I, I started laughing because it was so, it was such a, it was so ridiculous. You know, this guy who announces his his, his president, his uh, launch of his campaign by, by reminding the world that we apparently welcome in Mexican rapists. Some of them are good people, I'm sure, right? Hearing this guy call her out for her very problematic racially coded language. But I'm like, wait, you're not Michelle Alexander. Like, uh, what are you doing? Because he just gets a dossier of like everything to hit them on. Right. And he's pretty good at hitting. He's pretty good yeah, at hitting. Right. Because he doesn't have to claim any ideological. He doesn't give a shit. Yeah. None of his fans expect anything from him in terms of that. No one's going to be like, wait, are you coming? Are you coming at her from the left or the right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, even even liberals are a little too obsessed with hypocrisy, to be honest with you. Like nobody gives a shit about hypocrisy. It's not against the law. Nobody cares right. about hypocrisy. <laughs> like if you're a hypocrite and it gets the, your people what they want, right. like nobody exactly. gives right. a fuck about right. it. Right. Yes. I think the Trump base sees this as a rare opportunity. And as as the Trump uh, acolytes often say, this is a flight 93 election. Mm -hmm. You have to rush the cockpit otherwise between crash into the White House. And so, therefore, you have to support Trump no matter what, because this may be the last opportunity to turn back the clock. Yeah. And actually... They may be right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would hope this is the last opportunity to turn <laughs> but you never know. And it also reminds me of, of what the conservative uh, former speechwriter for George W. Bush says, which is that the Republicans fear their base. Right. And the Democrats don't like their base. Right. <laughs> I've heard, yeah, disdain can, yeah, don't like, I've heard versions of that. Yeah, but right. Because they can always be induced to attack their base. Right. They can be induced to jail their base and give them felony charges so they're not even able to vote. I mean, right. this, this is incredible. Or so, put them in jail so they can get access to the voting booth. Right. So what what are the things that you would say, um, what in particular are the lessons that you go over in your book um, that explain where we are today? What do you think are the things that are less shocking um, to, today? Today, today? What is the, that? realism that you have based on? Well, a a number of points. Uh, To reiterate, I think class collaboration is the key to understanding the Trump vote uh, as it manifested in 2016, as it may manifest and as probably will manifest in a few weeks. Second of all, I think that this construction of whiteness idea, uh, even though even many people on the left treat it as not some sort of constructed identity, but something normalized and natural, like being homo sapien, for example, mm-hmm. that I see it as a very fragile identity. As a matter of fact, I should have said this in the book, that once you had the agonized retreat of Jim Crow, which of course led to mass revolts in Little Rock, 1957, Oxford, Mississippi, 1962, Boston busing crisis, 1970s, Yonkers, 1980s, over housing, that these were mass revolts against the idea of desegregation. And so at a certain point, it became almost unavoidable 
that many that we now consider to be in the Trump base would, would come to treat non-Black members of the anti-Trump wing of the electorate like they're Negroes, basically. And it reminds me, I've been trying to get a graduate student, so let me put this out here. Somebody yeah. really needs to do a book on uh, the N-word lover phenomenon. Recall that in the bad old days of Jim Crow, they they lynched the black people, and if any non-black people came to their defense, they lynched them too, <laughs> you see, because they were N-word lover. Right. And I think we, we, need a, a, we need a deep dive into that phenomenon. The, the records are all there. It wouldn't be that hard to pull it off. As a matter of fact, the more I talk about it, the more I think I might try to do it. Uh, yeah. So so ignore that, grad students. No, 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 no. Like to collaborate with Dr. No, 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 really. Somebody needs to do yeah. that. I don't, I don't know if I have enough time. But, but that's another thing, too. And so right now, as I've been saying repeatedly in, in recent days, whenever there's a microphone before me, that recall that in the 1960s, after the civil unrest of the 1960s, Watts 65, Detroit, Newark 67, President Johnson appoints a commission to study the causes. And the Kerner Commission says the United States is moving towards two societies, separate and unequal, black and white. Well, now the United States is moving to two societies, but it's more that it's a so-called white minority that may pull off a coup in a few weeks. And then there's the rest of us. And already they have a hammerlock on the U.S. Supreme Court, which will go from five to six, presumably in a, in a few days. And then with this finagling with the Electoral College that helps to solidify their minority rule. And so we're headed to a kind of neo-apartheid society. Uh, that's where we're going right now which really shouldn't come as a surprise if people have been paying attention to these revolts against desegregation. It reminds me of what the reporters used to say about uh, Yugoslavia in the 1990s when it was decomposing. Uh, they would argue that the socialist leader Tito had swept ethnic passions under the rug. Well, you could say the same thing about the United States. Right. Uh, these passions, these racial passions were swept under the rug and as Lee Atwater and now George Bush have suggested, you just switch to code. Uh, instead of using the N-word, you know, you talk about states' rights and talk mm -hmm. about suburbs and housewives and suburbs and, and that sort of thing. Family values, so, whatever. Exactly. Huh, yeah. So what is the, uh, can you talk about what, you think one of the major contributions of this book is like in terms of wh what it contributed to scholarship, um, what it was that you were out to correct and what you think other historians hadn't sufficiently examined. Um, well, it, it's very basic. I mean, yeah. if you pick up many textbooks by reputable U.S. historians, they oftentimes begin the story of, say, slavery in 1619, for example. Right. Even though I'm sure if they were pressed, they would acknowledge that the Spanish from St. Augustine, Florida, had enslaved Africans from 1565. Another aspect of this story that I think is a contribution is just really trying to explain how this minor kingdom on the fringes of Europe, whose language we're now speaking, right. uh, got into the passing lane. And by, I th excuse me if I said this before, but 
by the time that the settlers from England arrived in what they call Virginia in 1607, the Spanish were so tied down in Florida, fighting the Native Americans and fighting their black allies, that even though they wanted to sail north to confront the English in what they call Jamestown, they were so tied down they were not able to. And so that's one of the major reasons why London was able to get this foothold in North America. And then, of course, I pushed back the story of the arrival of slave Africans even before 1565, that is to say to the North American mainland, uh, to the 1520s, because the Spanish were repeatedly trying to establish a foothold in North America. Uh, they brought enslaved Africans to what is now South Carolina in the 1520s. But the, the Africans revolted, ran, ran away to the Native American population, then chased the Spanish back to their perch in Santo Domingo. So that's also part of the story. And of course, the Ottoman Turks are a major part of the story. And, and, and sort of the existential fear that was induced in Western Europe when the Muslims ousted the Christians from what is now Istanbul and threatened to continue moving west, um, which in some ways impels the Iberians, the Spanish and the Portuguese, to start moving <laughs> west in response, which helps right. Columbus to encounter the Americas, as it said. And so the Muslims and the fear of Muslims play a, play a, a major figure, play a major role in the story. And in fact, uh, part of one of my footnotes talks about the New Zealand mass murderer, right. whose name we're not supposed to mention. Um, before he engages in that mass murder in New Zealand, he does a tour of the Balkans and issues a number of state anti-Muslim statements about what the Muslims had perpetrated. Because, of course, the Muslim, the Ottoman Turks, they were, they were an equal opportunity in slavery. I mean, they were enslaving Africans, they were enslaving Albanians and Serbians and Bulgarians, and knocked on the doors of the gates of Vienna more than once. As Englishmen were sailing south to try to enslave Africans in West Africa, West Africa, they, had, they were running the risk of being enslaved themselves in North Africa. Because Algeria was a major slave market for Europeans. And in fact, one of the ways in which the settlers here in North America dealt with the indigenous population was not only a simple genocide, or as some might have it, passive genocide because of pathogens right. that they introduced, but also they sold indigenous into slave markets all over the world. You can, I mean, figuratively, you can find Native American DNA all over the world in the North Africa and the slave markets of Istanbul, etc. So I, I think that part of the story that I tell, it's, as you probably know, scholarship is oftentimes siloed. It's mm -hmm. stone-type. Uh, that is to say, a person will spend their whole career studying the manufacture of, of shoestrings in France in 1685, where in this book, I try to draw upon a number of different uh, stories and historiographies of Africa, of Europe, of the Americas, of South America, of the Caribbean, and weave it into one tapestry. Yeah. 
Um, and you push back on a lot of myths, I, I, I guess, and takes, and you even, you know, critique someone who, you, as you say, you continue to respect, Howard Zinn, yeah. um, who I'm sure your fellow travelers in many cases, right? Um, but uh, because there's a, a, I guess, a leftist tendency sometimes to, well, there's a, there's a, it's, there's a fine line between denying agency and romant and over romanticizing history, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you look at the actual roles of, of uh, you look at the actual, at the fact that there was a lot more um, resistance, insurgency, can, uh, that then has often been discussed. Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think the, the traditional narrative of U.S. history to, to move ahead to the 18th century when the United States is formed is that it treats the black population of the 18th century as either ciphers, it's like they don't enter into the story, even though they're a significant part of the population, more significant uh, numerically than, than we are today, for example, or they're treated like we're chumps. <laughs> you know, we don't have enough sense to fight against slave owners, uh, even though uh, external forces uh, who are threatening to invade the United States say we can be free if we join them. And so, uh, certainly, I was pushing back against that story of being either ciphers or chumps uh, in, in the 18th century and then pushing it all the way back to the uh, 1500s. And, you know, I, I'm a little torn, t- to be frank with you, about that criticism I made of Howard Zinn. I, I probably shouldn't have said that because, uh, you know, I, I have re- immense respect what he was trying to do yeah and he deserves our congratulation our thanks um but you know it's on tape it's in the internet so what can i say <laughs> i mean it wasn't an all i want i thought i think that it's i feel like what he was doing and and what you guys are it's as much of a kind of strategic question uh he, he, what he would kind of reminds me i mean depending on what part of him we're talking about but there is a, a strain of leftist it reminds me of like you know Paul Robeson, right? The the kind of mm. romanticization of the founding of, of the United States for particular mm. purposes, right? Like the Abraham Lincoln brigades mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. in the Spanish Civil War, you know, they I don't think they were like dupes about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they were trying to take the best that they saw. And again, mm-hmm. these are mostly communists, right? Who are mm-hmm. fighting this. Um, and, and I think maybe it was like somewhat subversive but there's sometimes like it, there's a it's it's like a tricky dance to take the best of something without sugarcoating other parts of it. Well, I was thinking that I was just reading the New Yorker this week, and so there's this review essay about these books on Abraham Lincoln, and in light of the critique of the Lincoln statue in Washington, which of course was taken down, a similar statue in Boston, in light of the attack on uh, slave-owning founders that you've seen, for example, in Oregon, for example. I thought I thought the article was going to reflect some of the newer thinking about Lincoln. I mean, for example, in, my, in a book I wrote on the uh, antebellum United States, I pointed out that even after the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln was still trying to deport uh, enslaved Africans to whoever would take us in you know, Brazil. The problem was nobody would take us. That's one of the reasons we're, we're still here. And I think it, it's very important to have an all-sided view uh, of these historical figures because that might help us to understand today's Republican Party, which Lincoln helped to give birth to, which was 
an anti-slavery party in the narrowest sense, as people you read in the newspapers about Oregon. Oregon was anti-slavery when it entered the Union in 1859. They didn't want slavery or Negroes either. Right. And so in looking at the Republican Party today, perhaps if you were aware of that, you can understand the positions of the Republican Party today. And likewise, I mean, these folks in the United States, they have no problem about doing all-sided, warts and all analyses of socialists. Matter of fact, yeah, of course, that's their right. stock and trade. But when it comes to the people they're trying to make heroes or saints of, I saw this also with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, for example, I mean, all praises do with regard to yeah. uh, reproductive rights and voting rights and affirmative right. action. But in 30 years, I think she had one black clerk. I mean, you saw the picture yeah. on the steps yeah. of the Supreme Court. Yeah. Th this, this is unacceptable. And of course, Native Americans have a bone to pick with her about the opinion she wrote in the Oneida people of upstate New York. So I think it's, it's important to have these all-sided views. Otherwise, you can get duped. You, you get caught up in these U.S. fantasies and then you're shocked, shocked. If Trump is talking about pulling off a coup, you know, oh, you know, this, how could this happen in this sturdy democracy? Yeah. And what are your thoughts on on uh, what's happening now with um, with the protests, with um, with how to talk about? I mean, what what is to be done? What should? What, how do we talk about these things? Uh, both as as uh, and it's a bit of a weird conversation, also because I find myself and I'm like, what what are we even talking? What are we talking about when we're saying this should happen or that shouldn't happen? Like. Are we talking to people? And I, I know that you talked about this in your different interviews, which is that there's one of the issues. Sorry, there's a, a dog is being. Um, <laughs> let me close the door so we can't hear a dog being um, chastised for not using the facilities appropriately. <laughs> Fair enough. Sorry about that. <laughs> Very spoiled dogs. Um, well, my dad really spoils the dogs, and then my mom every now and then tries to impose order. But um, what were we just saying? Sorry, I forgot. Uh, Oh, let's see. What was I saying? Oh, we're just talking about people being surprised by the coup that's coming, and uh, you know. Oh, uh, oh, oh, right. What, uh, what should what should we do? What should we do? How yeah. should we talk about this? Oh, yeah. What should we do about Black Lives Matter? Right. Black, well, Black Lives Matter about about statues because one of the issues, and you've referred to this in many interviews, is that there is not a, there's no um, student no there's no SNCC there's no core there there is no there's no centralized organization. And I'm not saying this in a chastising way, there just isn't. And there, as I, I don't remember if it was when you were talking to Aaron Mate or Chris Hedges, but there is no real international, um, there's, there's, there are of course things and I'm already hearing in my head, I'm already imagining people like, Katie Halper denies the existence <laughs> of, you know, the transnational workers, whatever. <laughs> like caucus on black lives matter typical blah 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 but like there isn't it there is not the structure and organization that existed in the past so you don't even know who what to, what what are we even saying like are we just opining about what protesters should or shouldn't be doing where is there a place to talk about strategy where is there a place to talk about the historical like what makes sense historiographically is this all just a conversation in the ether, I mean, I don't, I don't even know where to start. But um. yeah, it, it, it's very. You raise some interesting points. I've been talking, as my friends on Pacifica say, with some journalists from the corporate media. Yeah. Late. And you know, it's very. It's been a very interesting conversation. I, I, I attribute it to desperation if they're talking to me. 
<laughs> you know, that, that shows that we're in a crisis. Right. That they deign to speak to me. I mean. Because so, you're usually too radical for them? I mean, is that? Oh, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I can tell you the times I've had you know, these preliminary interviews uh, with uh, mainstream networks. Right. right. And I give them my, my ideas and then I don't hear from them again. Right, yeah. But I, I, I get the idea that this representative of the corporate media is, is really going to print something that's very interesting. Um, and I was thinking, too, that part, part of what I was telling this journalist is that part of the problem is the NAACP is that this is the mass organization that has a centralized leadership that has offices all over the country. Right. It has dues paying members mm -hmm. and has been thoroughly enriched <laughs> since George Floyd was killed right. on May 25th. And yet, if you look at the history of the movement in recent decades, you've had the Nation of Islam reach out to Libya and Iran. You had Martin Luther King reach out to India. You had the Black Panther Party reach out to Cuba, Algeria, China, North Korea. NAACP hasn't reached out across the seas at all. Yeah. And so well, they're afraid they don't want the Russians to intervene if they if they do try to reach out. Putin's going <laughs> to find out and poison them or something. I guess. I but, but, but I was thinking that if, if this journalist publishes this story, this will be, see, if I tell the NAACP this is what they should be doing. Right. Dismissed. Right. <laughs> but if the corporate media tells them, they'll pay attention. Right. And um, at least that's what I'm hoping. Because certainly, yep. uh, to go back to history, a part of what has helped to transform North America and certainly has helped to transform the black condition has been these external forces. Uh, the fact of making global alliances, for example, and that's what's missing. As a matter of fact, I, I'm, I'm, I've even written the story in my mind that this journalist uh, will publish. And in my mind, the story, the last few sentences talks about what happens in June 2020 when the African Union files a petition at the Human Rights Council of uh, in Geneva of the United Nations, calling for a commission of inquiry into systemic racism in the United States. And so the journalist calls the NAACP for comment in my imagination, and they say they didn't even know about it. And the story ends right there. Right. And to me, that will say it all. <laughs> I mean, basically, right. that here you have people acting on your behalf, and you don't even know about it. And as yeah. a matter of fact, you don't even know about it, you're probably scared to. <laughs> to assist them, even though they're acting on your behalf. That's part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, so right. And so it, 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 I mean, the thing that's so scary about this is that it's such a, I don't know, it's, I don't even know how the left, um, I mean, I blame, I, I'm, as usual, I of course blame a lot of, I blame the Democrats, I blame libs, I blame left punchers, but it is kind of like, what? What can be done when, no matter what happens, Trump will frame every single anything that's done by anyone, even like whose mother once dated someone whose dentist is related to someone who identifies as Antifa. Like no matter what, the worst of the worst is going to get pinned on mm -hmm. on on the left or Antifa, which doesn't really exist. Um, is how do we even 
and I do think nonviolent resistance and direct nonviolence are so, and civil disobedience are so important strategically. And then a part of the left that I usually agree with on lots of things, I feel like gets kind of annoyingly like chiding when you say something, when you want to talk about nonviolent civil disobedience, because then you have to sit through a lecture of how actually the violent people are not the protesters, which I know. And property damage is not violence. Like, I know all of this. All right, now I'm just venting about how we can talk about this stuff on the left. But, like, we're armed. We're not going to win through anything remotely. I mean, they're very armed, the bad guys. So I don't I don't know what, what to do about, about – and I think that there's this, like, recent – and this is going to get me canceled or, like, people are going to stop watching the show. But I feel like there's this recent kind of fetishization of violence that – is just a little bit like, I don't know. It's tough because it's like, you know, we're just in this situation. You know what I mean? So it's like you can only like witness what you're witnessing and like try to try to react to what hell is. You know right. what I mean? It's like yeah. I stand. I like ultimately, you know, I, I don't know. It's like it's kind of icky to see the fetishization. But then at the same time, I'm also like this is just young people trying to like yeah. order the yeah, world. Right. You know what I yeah. mean? And it's yeah. like it's right. really Trump and his secret police and of everything course. like that. Yeah, no, right, yeah. I'm not trying to be one of these lecturers no, or no, whatever because I like right. get it. I, I totally get it. Quite, yes, know? no, and this is a question. I mean, I don't want to <laughs> at all make any false equivalency. Like, I, I guess it's more like what what kind of organizing can the left do? I don't know because look, yeah. Bernie, like uh, Bernie's not the nominee, uh, so we don't have that thing going. We'll see if Biden even wins. If he does win, we still have Trumpism. I just, I guess I'm feeling more. Uh, Even if Biden wins, honestly, it's a, you know, it's a lot of Keystone pipelines and stuff like that. Oh, like the people right. that work for Biden, you know, do a lot of bad stuff. <laughs> oh, no, they, of course they do. They just, in certain areas, I don't think it'll be as, as rhetorically heightened as in other right. areas. But, yes. um, but it's not going to go away. And in fact, there'll be, there'll be a backlash, I'm sure. Um, well, you know, we're, what you're pointing to is that we're in a very deep hole. And yes, that's a better way of putting it than I. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, the fact that the corporate media is reaching out to me shows what a deep hole. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, right. Like, they're actually taking this seriously. They're like, we don't know what how to deal with these people. We've got to talk to one of them. <laughs> and, but, but, but what I'll also suggest is that I'm not sure if we can turn the tide in, in, in 40 days. I mean, let, let's hope so. No, right. I mean, yeah. Particularly since I'm sure you followed these stories. Um the Brennan Center at NYU, the story about of the 18,000 police departments and units in the United States, a significant percentage have been infiltrated by white nationalists, white supremacists. Yeah. If you look at the Proud Boys, the Three yeah. Percenters, the Boogaloo Boys, yeah. Patriot Prayer at all, or just look at the scene that you can find on the internet between Mr. Rittenhouse in Kenosha and the kind of salute he was getting more metaphorically at least yeah. from the authorities in the streets. It's, it's, it's a very, and, and then it's very interesting already. I've seen the financial press begin to do an examination of the U S military and their political tendencies, wondering whether or not they'll follow Trump's orders on post-election day. But of course you, you have to look at more than U.S. military. You have to look at the political tendency of the Secret Service, right? Right. Of the Capitol Police, where they follow an order, excuse what might be considered hyperbolic, uh, but they follow an order to detain Nancy Pelosi, <laughs> for example. Um, 
the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. But the fact that we're talking in these, pardon expression, apocalyptic terms suggests the deep hole in which we find ourselves. (laughs) Oh, and it would be difficult to dig out of this hole within the next 40 days. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, it does uh, feel like, listen, yeah. people all the time are talking about like whether or not, you know, he'll have the army backing him up or whatever. But then I'm like, but he already has a patchwork agency of people like we already know, like it already happened with the George Floyd Floyd protests. The army didn't come to back him, but they also didn't do anything to stop him. And then all these other like pseudo military groups like ICE and CBP and right. Secret Service and everything were acted as enforcement. And so I think it's what you say, Dr. Horn is correct, you know, that it's like, will they arrest Nancy Pelosi? But then on the opposite end of that, you know, even if the military is not supporting Trump, are they going to fight through the D.C. police to go take him out of the White House? You know what I mean? It's like they might just stay neutral and then Trump actually has all these agencies. The military might say, like, we are above this, but we're going to stay out of it and let Trump's people gun you down in the streets. You know what I mean? Like that still is making a choice. And this this piece in The New York Times that has just been posted online, it's really a mode, a roadmap for a tax fraud prosecution, which I'm sure is already in motion in Albany, if not with Cyrus Vance and the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. But the detail is just staggering. And so he almost has to stay in office because it'll be easier to fend off a prosecution if you're a sitting president. Whereas if he's just another citizen, he's in an orange jumpsuit within six months. That's camouflage, right? Because he's all orange. Oh, I see. Well, listen, I, you know, honestly, and that's also the thing that, you know, in other countries leads to authoritarians taking over is because they think they're going to get in trouble if they leave office. Like that's a lot of the time with a lot of these guys. They're like the grift is like gotten too big at this point. And like if I seriously think I'm going to get arrested, fuck it, I might as well just stay in office forever. You know what I mean? Like, And we already know. And this is the thing. It's like, you know, people. It's it's time to be realistic about this because we know that Trump is the guy that will go right to the legal edge and like exploit the court systems. And like, you know, he fucking doesn't try to pay his contractors when he made hotels. You know what I mean? For like the brass fixtures, he would go to the edge. Of course, he's going to do it for the presidency. Yeah. You know what? Just to go back to that thing, I feel so uncomfortable saying it's kind of like I'll say this as a Jew. I'm comfortable saying this. Obviously, I didn't live through the Holocaust, but. Like, look, the Warsaw Ghetto, I would never be like, what a what a bunch of dicks they were. They're such ass. No, obviously, there's like, I just want to use as an example of like, it's very clear who's on the right side and on the wrong side. Nazis, wrong side. Warsaw Ghetto, inhabitants, right side. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, it's not, an, a, you could have, t- I mean, I'm sure that was a painful discussion to look at. That, that's all I mean. And I'm not in the, I'm not in I was not in the Warsaw Ghetto and I'm not in I'm not in a, a major city right now. I guess I'm just saying that, like, it's so hard to talk about violence versus nonviolence without it sounding like you're making some kind of ethical judgment. And I guess I'm saying, like, look, it's clear, like I would ask this question the same way I'd be like, so. Well, except for with the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, so there is actually nothing. There was no real choice. It was death either way. So that's why I think this is actually important. Like, I do think this could be suicidal. And that doesn't put the moral burden on the people on how we as non-Trump people respond. I just think it's something that should be talked about. And I don't even know how to 
talk about it, but I guess we have to figure it out because we don't have the arms. Like moral stuff aside, we just don't have them. And I am worried. Look, I blame. I don't blame. Like I don't blame young leftists who are like, you know, fuck the police. Um, all cops are bad. Like those are not my. Those are not the enemy or the cause of anything. I'm just nervous because I do think that the bad guys are so armed. And of course, you know, I'm the same person. I hate the Dems. I think they're responsible for Trump as much as Trump is. Um, but it's just, I don't know. I, it's, it is a scary moment because I do think that the other side is so in, in like there are fr- Listen, elements of the other side that are so insane. And I, yeah. I also think this is like kind of a reflection of like, you know, just literally how powerless the left has become yeah. nationally. And some of that is in le- like, yeah. I believe that during the primary, Barack Obama made some calls and it's not cheating or whatever, but sort of unnatural things happened in right. the primary that, you know, that no political you know no no political organization has ever done before to like stop the mo- the candidate with momentum or whatever and so you know some of this stuff you're seeing with the young leftists all cops are bad and it's right. like we don't have power outside of yeah. the local level right. and 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 like if you're looking at it realistically there's not a roadmap to it until like the yeah. 2030s maybe you know what i mean right. like it's like it's pretty <laughs> difficult at this point and like sort of coming to grips with that like you know maybe i just want to see a wendy's burn you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. i know and i'm not, I'm not at all saying there's any i'm not vilifying people for burning wendy's for plotting the burning of wendy's at all i'm just like well, uh yeah i'm just uh I don't know i mean you've lived through but, you're, but you are right you are right uh, katie that we are not we're not as armed <laughs> Right. That's the thing. It's like moral stuff aside. And uh, yeah, I just what, what, what do you have? Are you is this a I mean, have you been in other historic moments where you feel like this is an unprecedented moment? It can't get any worse. And then you look back, and you're like, wow, I can't believe I ever thought that then. <laughs> well, I think it can get worse. I mean, right. as a matter of fact, I don't know if this is pessimism, but I think in this country, we can always get worse. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I do these uh, commentaries on this station in Los Angeles and I, to a black, mostly black audience. I raised the specter just the other day of re-enslavement. And if there is truly a fascism coming down the pike, and we know that fascism involved massive slavery in Eastern Europe, uh, you, you can't really rule it out, particularly when you look at U.S. history and recognize recognize that part of the antagonism that led to the rise of the Ku Klux Klan in 1865 was that the property in enslaved Africans was seized without compensation. Like when I have classes and try to impress this upon students, of course, like students today, they're usually fiddling with their smartphones as I'm talking. So I go and grab their smartphone. and say, I've just expropriated your property without compensation. How do you feel right now? Well, that's how the Klan felt. And there's been this the spirit of revenge mm-hmm. <laughs> about mm-hmm. these billions of dollars in property that was taken in compens- without compensation, not only against the former property themselves, uh, but the federal government. That, that has a lot to do with this anti-Washington psychosis because right. it was the federal government in Washington that basically executed that mandate and so as they go step by step towards trying to turn back the clock, we would be naive if we were to assume that Trump 2021 
will just be a mite worse than Trump 2020. I think it could be a whole lot worse and people should start uh, considering that. So what do you think is the best that, that people can work for or hope for? Is well, DCIU, yeah. It's, it's hard to say, as I mean, <laughs> you know, as I said, if, if you're in a deep hole, it's difficult to right. start looking up for sunshine and uh, rainbows. Um, but I think that at least what I was referring to with regard to the NAACP, hopefully that'll be reversed. I mean, obviously these black organizations need to start reaching uh, overseas. And I would say non-black organizations too, for that matter. Yeah. And also I think we, we have to be, I'm all for these people trying to oust Trump for, from office, including the never Trump Republicans. But we have to watch them with a jaundice eye because I think that they basically want to recreate the pre-2016 Republican Party. That's all they want to do. It's not like <laughs> that was some sort of great leap forward for humanity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look at David Brooks of the New York Times, for example, to, to get back to our punching bags. <laughs> so, you know, he signs this notorious letter about cancel culture. Uh, that was pinned by this uh, Ivy League professor who in 2016 writes a book and says, the reason Trump got elected was because of Black Lives Matter, because this right. organization so infuriated the Trump base, they saw no alternative but to put Trump in office. The other uh, co-author of this letter, whose name I will not repeat, is this light-skinned Negro who lives in Paris who wrote a book about how it's a shame he's not defined as white. All right, whatever. Yeah. And so they're complaining about cancel culture. And, and don't forget Barry Weiss. Never and sign Barry, Barry, Barry also. Barry oh, yeah. Weiss, all the way. Barry yeah, forever. Yeah, disappeared, fortunately. I'm but, sure she's watching a new thing with Andrew Sullivan. Yeah. Well, he got exposed. That's for they're sure. They're probably in a chateau together working on the Ooh. new. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't Type, that is so. the funniest thing is people will complain about cancel culture and Andrew Sullivan. I'm like, that's crazy what you did, what you sent someone. Anyway, sorry. Well, just a footnote on Andrew <laughs> Sullivan. I mean, what, what Ben Smith in the New York Times article from a few weeks ago was alluding yeah. to. Was some of the stuff he put on Twitter about Nicole Hannah-Jones in the New York Times was really awful. Yeah, yeah. It was made of racism and sexism. Mm -hmm. I mean, if anybody should have been canceled. I mean, actually, I'll, I'll repeat it. I mean, yeah. so... So Nicole Hannah-Jones was talking about the myth of the elongated black penis. And so right. Andrew Sullivan says, well, how do you know it's a myth? Have you done a study? You know. Right. And then he says, well, I was tipsy. That's why I, I, I said that. You know, I was drunk. I mean, I haven't heard that since I was in college. Right. You know, using alcohol as a defense. But anyway, so David Brooks, he signs the letter, too. Remember in February, after Bernie Sanders won the Nevada um, primary, yeah. Brooks writes this column, never Bernie. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, he was trying to cancel yeah. Bernie Sanders. And that right. probably played a role, along with other similar uh, words from never Trumpers, in pushing for Biden's victory in South Carolina. Yeah. I mean, between that and the liberal media like MSNBC saying that Bernie is like a uh, the Nazis landing in France, right. um, R.I.P. 
Chris Matthews, whose job was fine, <laughs> except for a Me Too thing. That's let's all be. Yes, it was not, nothing to do with saying that everyone was Nazis. He just was like he was pinching makeup ladies on the butt yeah, and stuff like, like that. Like saying inappropriate things, and that's what happened. Um, but yeah, you know, Joanne Reed's body language expert. I learned a lot about Bernie from that. So yeah, anyway, but, but and, and, uh, and by the way. We, we we by the way we see how how helpful these uh these never Trump uh Republicans are now that the Supreme Court thing is happening yeah. like all of them are very very quiet all of a sudden about Amy Coney right. Barrett. <laughs> well, Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney is like yeah, Mitt Romney you know, openly is just like I'll vote openly. with it or whatever yeah. yeah. Yeah, how how do you see? Um, oh, I, so sorry, I cut you off. You were talking about no, 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 no. Uh, Sullivan and and the cancellation oh, letter. No, no, and, it's I, just. I, I mean, what what they're trying to do, for example, uh, George Will, the bowtie popinjay of the Washington Post opinion page. <laughs> so he's been writing these. He's a never Trump Republican, of course. Right. Of the, so he, he's led the Republican Party up to the brink of disaster. I know. I love. I'm so people. proud of all these people. They were great with the Iran Contras. These people, <laughs> love, um, you know, don't like scandal or decorum violations. They're fine. Yeah. With that one, though. Yeah. So he he keeps encouraging the Democrats to attack Black Lives Matter because right. of the quote violence unquote that has been unleashed in the streets of Kenosha, Portland, et cetera. So once again, he's trying to give force the opposition to attack their base. So right. he's now, he's now it, it, previously he was an enemy outside the gates. Now he's an enemy inside the gates. Right. Yeah. And inevitably he'll have influence. And uh, we'll, of course, I mean, if, if I were Biden, in the Biden administration, probably. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's almost you can almost think of him as a triple agent, not as a double agent. Right. And, and what about um, any any thoughts on the kind of from a historical perspective on the um, on Amy Coney Barrett? I mean, her just her religious identity is kind of like I want to I want to go in undercover in that. What's it called? The people who praise. <laughs> Or the hands, what are they called? The, she's like, first of all, I thought the whole point of being a Catholic is that they have a monopoly. Like, it's our way or the highway. The one true like, faith. One what? The one true faith. Yeah, I thought that was their thing. But but these people that she's part of, they're like, they're mostly Catholic. They're almost all Catholic, but they don't really follow. They're not considered Catholic by them. Yeah, so what the hell is no, this actually, supposed to be? This ties into the book, believe it or not. Yeah. Because... At the end of the book, actually, you can turn to the last few pages. Yeah, that's I what quote, uh, Michael Wolf's book on uh, Trump, where Trump expresses surprise and bafflement that there are so many Catholics on the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, and he says something like, "I thought this was this was a Protestant country." And of course, my comment is is that apparently he doesn't not recognize the efficacy of the construction of whiteness and the reconciliation between Protestants and Catholics and those who were Jewish, which helped to construct this new so-called white identity uh, with this new identity then encoded in the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, which calls for religious liberty. And unlike the credulous historians who have suggested that this comes purely from their brains as a product of enlightenment, it's really a way to consolidate settler colonialism. And so in other words, to have this formidable force powerful enough to confront the indigenous and take their land and restrain the rebellious Africans. And so now with Amy Coney Barrett's impending ascension to the high court, I think you'll have six Catholics uh, on the high court. 
And I also, um, I deal with this as well with regard to uh, William Crystal, another infamous uh, mm-hmm. never. I'll have to take on it. Another, that's somebody else who has not mentioned Amy Coney Barrett once uh, over exactly. the last few days. Well, of course, we don't um, consider her part of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a book, uh, I think it's called Stars of David. You might want to read this book, uh, Professor Halper. It's. Um, it's a book about prominent Jewish Americans. And I so that I wasn't in it. <laughs> you may be. I should. Yeah. Start with David. Yeah. I'll be in the sequel. <laughs> and so they talk about how um, Felix Roy, you may remember him from the old New York days. He was the New York financier who winds up as ambassador to France. And he's passed away now. And the, the point is made that in France, they always refer to him as Jewish. Not necessarily to the same degree in the United States. And of course, the inference being that the United States is so much more enlightened than France. And it, even though France supposedly has this idea about, you know, we're all French, which is why they only collect statistics about race, etc. Right. And so, but the point is, of course, is that in the United States, because of the reach of the construction of whiteness, uh, his Jewish identity in some ways is not as uh, potent as it might be in France, for example. And the other point that I make is that, once again, with these halting steps towards desegregation and inequality, uh, it's inevitable that there would be a backlash and the backlash would not only seek to reach uh, black people, but those who are in the same electoral neighborhood as black people as well. And given the fact, say, that the Jewish population votes about 75% against the GOP, right. and that, that scenario that I'm making allusions to should not be ignored. In other words, reference here, Charlottesville, August 2017, attack on the Pittsburgh synagogue, the attack on the center in Kansas City, um, the the explosion as the Anti-Defamation League would put it of anti-Jewish incidents, uh, for example. I mean, people should not just assume, uh, although I know it helps people to sleep at night, that the status quo will perpetuate itself and that things can't go backwards right you can go backwards i mean that's that's one of the many lessons of history is that things don't always move forward there we used to not have the death penalty there was a time when it didn't exist yeah and it came back or slavery came back i mean for example uh in the immediate aftermath of the french revolution there was a move to abolish slavery not only in what became haiti but other French Caribbean islands. But then after the rise of Napoleon, slavery came back, <laughs> basically. And then it took about four and a half more decades for it to be abolished again. So, you know, the, the narrative of the United States is that uh, there's steady movement forward towards a more pe- perfect union. I just saw Bill Clinton say that the other day, in fact. But uh, I think that that's, naive, it's idealistic, it may be meant to reassure so people can sleep easily at night, 
but I don't think you should be making wagers on that proposition. Right. <laughs> so for uh, I'll just can I just read this part of your book? That's sure. So uh, still, Republicans could boast about their retreat from the poison of St. Bartholomew's 1572. In 2018, the U.S. President Donald J. Trump was perplexed to find that there were no Protestants on the highest court in the land. All were either Catholic or Jewish. You had all Protestants, he remarked in a burst of bafflement. And then in a few years, none. Doesn't that seem strange? <laughs> you should be able to have the main religion in this country represented on the Supreme Court, end quote. Apparently, he did not fully comprehend the construction of whiteness and the success of this project in curbing religious hostility, a giant step, again, except toward building the republic over which he presided. Yet the continuing persistence of racism continued to bear the seeds of a pernicious bigotry that in the longer term, like a loose thread on a well-sewn suit, could unravel the finely wrought whiteness, leading to a recrudescence of example, of, for example, anti-Jewish fervor, as suggested by a number of troubling incidents during the tumultuous tenure of the 45th president, including murderous attacks on synagogues and pro-Nazi marches. Exactly. Yeah. Especially in the midst of Great Depression levels of unemployment and bankruptcies and collapses of entire sectors of the economy, spiraling homelessness, which is right. reached into sectors class sectors that have not been familiar with this phenomenon, only from mm -hmm. newspapers and television. And right. this is taking place in the midst of a country where class consciousness is not very high, to put it mildly, where class organization is not very well developed, to put it mildly, and where you had in recent years, not only this Tea Party phenomenon, uh, which sought to re redirect anger from the 1% and Wall Street to those at the bottom of the economic pyramid, which is one of the reasons why uh, Trump's remarks when he first decided to run for office attacking Mexicans resonated so strongly, I'm afraid to say, with so many. So th this is a, a very grim scenario. And in particularly, uh, you know, one of the troubling absences of the lexicon of the US left is the term settler colonialism. I mean, it, it's hardly used in academia. Right. And what other term right. describes what has happened in North America when you had this invasion from Europe, the ousting and liquidation of the indigenous population? I mean, what else is it? I mean, that, that's a troubling sign, I'm afraid to say, of a kind of political illiteracy uh, that uh, is quite concerning and troubling. Could you actually, um, as a as a major gift to the world, could you define because some I, I, there's an ignorance, but then there's also people I think often use certain terms like white supremacy without actually knowing what they mean. Mm -hmm. um, could you give kind of like a um, uh, a historian's um, uh, civilians guide historian's guide to civilians on <laughs> um, settler colonialism? white supremacy and uh neoliberalism mm -hmm. <laughs> and like you know easy right in a sentence each yeah well you know you can yeah. reference my previous yeah. remarks with regard to historical yeah. evolution of, of this uh, term white supremacy but in some it's the the process whereby predominantly those of european descent were able to establish themselves by dent 
of colonialism in the first place as a ruling elite, not least in the Americas, but ultimately in a good deal of Asia and Africa as well. Notice that, that uh, I, I sort of qualify the term because as you know, in the United States, you don't necessarily have to be part of the European diaspora to be considered white. I mean, look at Ralph Nader, for example, he's Lebanese Christian background, but then that ties into the other aspect, which are the religious roots of white supremacy because he comes from a Lebanese Christian background. I'm not so sure if he came from a Lebanese Muslim background, would he be if inducted right. into the hollow hole of whiteness? If his name were recognizably like Arabic sounding. Let's well, say. the same holds true for other populaces. I mean, for example, uh, in the book, there's a reference to the late Senator Paul Laxalt, L-A-X-A-L-T, who was a close comrade of Ronald Wilson Reagan. Yeah. Now, he was a Basque descent, Basque or the minority group in Spain. Yeah. And because That's his surname was not recognizably, quote, Hispanic, unquote, it allowed him to rise a bit higher because, of course, part of the project that unfolded in the United States in, in, involved uh, a systematic and systemic denigration of things Spanish. For that matter, even even not necessarily accepted into the hollowed halls of whiteness, to show you the level of denigration that they've been subjected to. Now, settler colonialism is this process that mostly you could say uh, extends from um, from Europe to other parts of the world. Although there is recent scholarship that talks about a kind of Japanese settler colonialism in, say, Taiwan. Uh, right. Uh, 1895, for example, whereby this invading force uh, sets itself up as the ruling elite over other populations and then extracts the wealth, exploits the labor uh, for their benefit. Now, neoliberalism, of course, is a term that is a kind of shorthand for uh, a so-called free market, so to speak. Uh, where everything is for sale. I mean, the, the, the exaggeration of neoliberalism would be uh, every 15 feet, as you walk down a sidewalk, you have to pay a toll, for example. Fortunately, we have socialist sidewalks where you don't have to pay a toll right. in, in order to, right. to walk on the sidewalk. And this is this uh, sort of turbocharged capitalism uh, meant to benefit the 1% that then has been forced on the rest of the world by then US imperialism and their sidekicks, including the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, et cetera. So whereby a country such as Zambia, for example, about maybe 50% of their budget right now does not go to healthcare or education, goes to paying back debts right. uh, to bank banksters in London, New York, uh, et cetera. And so that's the system uh, under which we're now laboring. And that's the system that unless emergency action is taken, I, I think what, what's happening in the United States right now is, is in a sense the chickens have come home to roost. That is to say, so U.S. imperialism, the, the, they inflicted fascism on Chile and other countries across the world. And there was not necessarily a mass uprising in the streets of the United States as these 
depredations and crimes were inflicted on other peoples. And so now it's coming back home. It's just like an article talking about the disproportionate number of uh, veterans in the three percenters, the Boogaloo Boys, Patriot Prayer, et cetera. And one of the journalists was making the point that one of the lessons that veterans learned in terms of their service abroad is that you solve political problems through military means. Right. And if it's good enough for Iraq and good enough for Afghanistan, well, why isn't it good enough for Portland, for example? Yeah. Yeah. Like the Mayor Pete quote, which I can't remember right now, but where he says, you know, he didn't go around uh, carrying these weapons in Afghanistan uh, just so he could have to come back here and, and deal with them. Uh, it was something like uh, I didn't have to go around the streets of Afghanistan with an assault rifle just to come back here and see them in the streets. I'm like, well, what does that make you feel like? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it's like, yeah, what do you you don't want to be subjected to the stuff that you were that you subjected other people to? Seems like and aren't you supposed to be a very good Christian, Mayor Pete? I get that. That's not the golden rule. Come on. Call me up. I'll explain. (laughs) I'll explain the New Testament to you. (laughs) <laughs> Mayo Pete. Um, well, okay. You know, his it, father is a was a leading um, Romschian. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, scholar. Well, that, that's a very interesting phenomenon right now. You have all of these uh, mainstream figures who had left leaning parents, like Kamala Harris, for example. Yeah. Uh, e- even Obama. Uh, his grandparents were very close to the organized left. That's one of the, the reasons why, one of the many reasons why the right got so inflamed. I know, if only he were the thing that they said he was. Just like if only Kamala and Joe Biden were the thing that Trump is saying that they are, these radicals. But mm-hmm. yeah, my friend Shuja, friend and guest of the show, um, Shuja Hader, actually wrote a piece at the now late outline called um, uh, Centrist Child Syndrome. Mm. Uh, about uh, Pete's, I'll send you the link about Pete's, uh, Pete and Kamala coming from, le- um, you know, Marxist parents, fathers. Because, um, of course, you know, and then Kamala Harris, her father, like, like justifiably uh, decried, uh, lamented that she, but said something like he was glad that their her ancestors weren't around to see her <laughs> when, when she went on um, the breakfast club and they asked her about her terrible record on marijuana, you know, right, like, right, right, right. Hot stuff. And she said, of course I smoke one. My family's Jamaican. Yeah. It was the Jamaican side, I guess. It was like, I'm just glad they're not here. <laughs> see this. I, I, I tweeted, I was like, who do you think uh, Kamala's dad is rooting for? Um, Karen Bass or Barbara Lee? Which I do think. I assume he probably won. Well, yeah, Karen Bass really got deep sixed. Uh, oh my God! I mean, well, as you know, Chuck Todd, who is the is the hammer and sickler in chief. I mean, he actually said, "I wa- I rewatched the segment with Ronya Kalik, and he actually said to Bernie, you're going to get ha- you got kind of upset.' The New York Times piece on you, like, oh, they're, they're totally red baiting, like." Contra's uh, deifying piece that they wrote on you and how bad you were, Bernie Sanders, because mm-hmm. he like sided with the Sandinistas against the Contras um, and like, you know, let a Soviet delegation visit you in Burlington and like tore a, a Ben and Jerry's f- um, factory or something. But yeah, they were, he was saying, uh, you know, th- you, they're gonna, they're gonna hammer and sickle you. 
you're gonna get hammered and tickled. Chuck Todd said that to Bernie. And Bernie's like, I mean, I expect that from the right wing. I don't expect that from the media, (laughs) from you, Chuck Todd, which is what you just did. But yeah, he and he he really, you know, he went after Karen Bass for for having done the Benteramos brigades in Cuba, for having called Castro a jefe or not a comandante or something. I don't remember what crime it was. And speaking at some some um, communist funeral. Oh yeah, O'Neill Cannon. Yeah. Yeah, I knew O'Neill Cannon. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Well, don't try to run for vice president. <laughs> <laughs> That's enough, apparently. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for all your time, and thank you for putting up with so much. Uh, next time, I would love to have you on again, and I'll keep it more uh, in the in, based. I'll be more of an originalist, based in more. It's all good. Time. It's all good. It's hard to not talk about all these things uh, now with someone because you're, you know, you're. Uh, like a bottomless. What's the opposite of some of you're saying that we're in the deep in the deep hole? So what's the opposite of that? You're like a a, uh, a never ending uh, resource. There you go. Lagoon, a, a lagoon of knowledge. I don't even know what a lagoon is, but I like it. It's a lake, right? It's good. That works, right? Yeah, it's a body of water. I know that much. Yeah. yeah. Lagoon. lagoon. With- Check out that movie. Oh, yeah, with Bridget Shields, right? Um, um, any final words? Anything you want to... Oh, any final words? Well, yeah. um, unless you want to go out endorsing Blue Lagoon as a movie, which is... I only mentioned that because you mentioned the word. Yeah, I know, I know. But, um, so the book, The yeah. Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots yeah. of Slavery, yeah. White Supremacy, Settler Colonial Capitalism. My next book will be out in December. The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. That is to say, boxing. And it's, uh, you know, I've written a number of books about organized crime, and this is just one more, because it's, it's, you know, organized crime is a metaphor for the construction of U.S. society, for one, because, I mean, how, how do you get land without it being sold and get labor without paying for it unless some sort of organized crime is involved. And so when you're talking about organized crime, in some ways you're talking about a foundational precept of of the United States. But this is in the context of boxing. And by the way, you you may be interested because I deal in the uh, first few chapters of, you know, there was a, a, a real reign of Jewish boxers in the first few decades of the 20th century. And many of them, in their interviews, they talk about how their skills were honed in their neighborhoods because they were always okay. being attacked by Irish Americans and Italian Americans. Yeah. And so they had to learn how to use their fists, which then propels them into boxing. And right. there are also stories in this book as well that are, I'm afraid to say, somewhat equivalent between what befell Africans. For example, there was this phenomenon known as the Battle Royal, which I understand now is the name of a video game. <laughs> but in the original Battle Royal, you blindfold six or seven African men and put them in a ring and have them fight each other. And whoever emerged triumphant, you know, would get, a, I don't know, an extra hot dog or something. In concentration camps, 
the Nazis had something similar, interestingly enough. But in any case, so this, this is a book that deals with the politics. You know, many of these boxes are very political, uh, not only Muhammad Ali, which I'm sure many of you know about, um, but uh, other boxers were involved with Henry Wallace, the left challenger to Harry Truman and Thomas Dewey in 1948, speaking of Joe Lewis, the Brown Bomber. Uh, Jack Johnson, the heavyweight champion of the first few decades of the 20th century, was actually socialist oriented. So that book will be out in December. Look for it. Wow. Great. Yeah. That's a book you definitely should have um, Dr. Horn on um, struggle session for, Jack. Yeah, we should. We should get you on uh, uh, when when that comes out. There, there, yeah. there are a lot of pop culture. Yeah, really we do pop culture over there. Discussion. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And um, and then anything. So we'll definitely have you on again to talk about that. I'll get my uh, my mom had, did have uh, rocks thrown at her by Irish Catholic school kids because she grew up in the Bronx. And my mom was growing up. Her name is Eisenberg. And it was like everyone knew each other's business, basically. And it's interesting question of identity. And even when you mentioned the fact that these Jew anti-Semitic hate crimes are going up, that although I have to say that, like, the ADL will t- describe something as a hate crime when it's not. But besides. Mm-hmm. That the interesting with the Jewish thing is like you're not a moving target necessarily the way you are. Again, it all it depends. Like Ralph Nader is not. I mean, he's a moving target because of he's a threat to many powerful people. But it's not like he's known as a Lebanese American person per se, right? right? And um, it's like my Jewish. My last name is Halper, and like I used to not even you know. Some people people find this funny. I, people have often thought I was like, oh, you're so yeah, you're clearly you're Jewish, and then other people are like, oh no, you're Italian or Latina, but interesting question of identity and how, yeah, it, it, how easy it is to not feel like, because if I don't go to a Jewish event, I'm not, people won't necessarily know I'm Jewish, right? So it, it creates a very different identity in terms of like a consciousness mm-hmm. around it. One of the things I find striking, you know, I, I got into the records of the New York State Athletic Commission for this uh, book. One of the things I found striking is that oftentimes these Jewish boxers they would change their surnames and oftentimes take on Irish names, interestingly. Huh. It's not as if there was no discrimination against Irish Americans. Right. Yeah, but but I think that there, well, there's a whole thing there, but there definitely is not like Jews, I don't think are, have a Jew, I mean, there's a whole, I, there's a whole thing with like Jewish identity in Israel and, and, and manlyhood, I think. So uh, it wouldn't surprise me that they, they felt like they, they didn't have a leg, you know, the cowering Ashkenazi Jew in the corner, right? Who didn't do anything while his, that, that whole trope, who didn't do anything to protect the women and his family during the pogrom. Or uh, I could imagine that there would be some, uh, that that's what they would maybe, or maybe they felt like they could pass as that and not something else. But no, that doesn't really make sense. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's I, I don't even offer an explanation. I just report it. Yeah, right. Um. Uh, whereas I, I just, I, I don't even report. I just go explanation. I don't even know what happened. I just offer. The- <laughs> um, and uh, last, last question is: Do you have, as a historian or as a, as an activist, uh, any thoughts about the significance of the election? Like, is your, do you have a take on it about, you know, Biden is? I, I mean, different people have different takes, ranging from you got to vote for Trump in a in a swing state to do whatever you want. It's not my place to Chris Hedges is telling, is saying you should vote third party. Angela Davis is saying you got to vote um, Biden because he creates more space for Mm anti-racist organizing. 
though I, I would I, I do wish she had she had expressed a position during the primary because if electoral politics matter, they matter during the primary, not just the general. But I'll stop mentioning that. Um, do you have any any like well, formal? I, I think it depends on where you live. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if you live in Washington, D.C. or California or New York uh, or Mississippi or Alabama, uh, I think you can safely, without hesitation, vote for a third party because this is a federal system. I mean, it's 50 different, actually 51 different elections, not, I mean, Hillary Clinton until you get the most votes and still lose. So it's, it's state by state. And having said that, one of my fondest hopes and wishes is that after the votes are counted, people don't blame Howie Hawkins for whatever happens. <laughs> the, the way that uh, Jill Stein has been blamed for Trump, then Ralph Nader has been blamed for George W. Bush. I think if we're going to look for blame, let's in the first place blame the people who voted for Trump. And then try to come up with an analysis of why they may have done so, and then try to come up with a plan as to how to change their minds. I mean, can you imagine what kind of world this would be if in Mississippi and Alabama, where nine out of 10 year old Americans vote for the right and have for more than half century, if you could knock that down to 55 percent, let's not say to zero. I mean, that's asking sure. too much. Let's say to 55%. Th- this would be a different world altogether. I mean, quite frankly, I, I mean that literally. Uh, we would have much talking about having space uh, for progressivism. Uh, that's that's what we need to start thinking about. And, uh, and even with 2000, with the Supreme Court handing the election right. to George exactly. W. Bush, I didn't see that much of a um, of an effort to problematize, as literary critics say, this question of the Euro-American vote, particularly in Dixie, where you have this astonishing cross-class coalition, which of course, to go back full circle, goes back to class collaboration and the origins of settler colonialism. Mm -hmm. Right. No, I think that's a really important point. Um, And they're already starting to do it. I mean, this was coordinated. You had the, the, the New York Times piece on Jill Stein, on the green, sorry, then, then Jill Stein was trending on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, already preparing. Um, so, yeah, we should, uh, we can, after we, after uh, maybe Jack, you and I, for the end of the show, after we bid our um, uh, Dr. Horn are due for now, we can come up with some other people that we can, that they can, that the, the Dems they can blame. blame. Yeah, maybe yeah. that would be helpful. Realistical, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So, okay. So that means that you guys have the, uh, you are, you've been given the permission to, if you want to vote, um, Gerald Horn, Katie Halper, or Jack Allison, and you're <laughs> in a state, go ahead and do it or put all three of us on the ticket. Particularly um, in Mississippi. Yeah. 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 Um, well, thank you so much, Dr. Horn, for coming on. It's a great, great book. It's so interesting. And you get to hear very weird, funny, and idiosyncratic things about people in different parts of the world which is always fun and uh well, yeah. send me the link i will i definitely will all right thank good luck you. thank you nice bye. to meet you see you later bye well that, that was, was great, great. yeah great. so smart yeah. wow geez so smart. i got kind yeah. of overwhelmed like i it was hard for me to by the way wait hold on hold on you guys rookie 
thank you, Rookie, for that generous donation. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Holy shit. I mean, I don't. Yeah. Thank you, Rookie. No, that's very kind. Very kind, Rookie. And also, um, oh, Fantomas Fanto, thank you for your your donation and also your recommendation that you should watch the whole ad because it moves my ranking up. You know, if there is a way I can do it, I would watch with you guys. Can we do that somehow so we can do funny commentary on Watch on ads it? together? Yeah. We just, hmm, I, I don't know. know. I don't know if there's a way to watch an ad together. You know, yeah. I don't know if anyone's tried to do that technology quite yet, to be honest well, with you. Um, I want also to thank Patrick Emmett for a $10 super sticker. Thank you, Patrick. Um, also, Sherwood Mosley. Thank you for $50, guys. Wow. Sure what You're says, cleaning up. Good Lord. Cannot wait to get the new book. Amazing to hear from Dr. Horn. Um, what else do we got? Uh, oh, then I took a screenshot of Stars of David, prominent Jews talk about being Jewish. And I took a shot of that because I'm going to tweet about that and urge them to consider, not urge them, demand that they put me in their next edition. <laughs> uh, and anyone else whose comments I've shown, I got to get better about this because I don't get How do people do it? Do they just read them during? Is this the post game, like post chat type of thing? Is that what? You know, I think it's know? just if you catch it, you know, it just depends, you know, interrupt, like Dr. Gerald. People want to see you read it. You know what I mean? It's not so much about like that you have to, you know, plus you're not like a dancing monkey. You don't have to just read it the second they say, you know, in fact, you got to stick around. Yeah, you got to stick around to hear it. That's part of the fun. Yeah, you don't know. If you're just doing it to get an an automatic read from me, then it's not going to happen. It just may not happen, but I hope it doesn't mean that you're not going (laughs) to be doing it. Yeah, Um, you know, obviously keep tipping. Once you get to a $50 level, it'll happen. That's what I'm doing. Wow. yeah, he, that was great. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I found it. You know, and I and I do really think like the whole thing I was talking about with the violence, it just I feel like I don't know how to say it because I don't want to sound like I'm blaming anyone. But it's yeah. I'm like a protective mom who doesn't want her kids to get. Listen, it's just like it is scary out there. It's like, like I get it. Bad. My yeah. kids are thinking that they my kids who think they're invincible. And like, uh, <laughs> not enemy. I just don't want them to be killed. That's basically it. What it comes down to. I know it is really crazy out there. It's like, you know, it is. And it is that that is for real, too. It is like yeah. at this point, it's like, you know, we are talking about like the police are kind of an occupying force yeah. and right. they're hugely outfitted and every like you look at Kenosha and it's like Kenosha is yeah. a small town in Wisconsin and they had like they had like you know militarized police there or whatever you're not wrong to be afraid you know what i mean and and i think you're right that people have been kind of like getting a little fetishizing of it but then i'm also like it's just a hell we just live in hell we just live in hell you know (laughs) yeah yeah. and i don't want to make it's not i don't want to make anyone feel i'm not accusing anyone and that was a very like inter like that was almost like a what is it among friends type of yeah 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 what do we do oi type of thing but um because I, I think that there we do have to learn how to distinguish between moral, like righteousness and and um, I don't want to say responsibility. I sound like such a like a chaperone at some like 1950s <laughs> or something like such a downer. But yeah, I'm just I, I guess like strategy, like strategy <laughs> so that everyone doesn't end up like dead. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it literally is more strategy than it is like trying to like tell right. people what to do. It's just like, yeah, you know, this is happening. Obviously, there are a lot of people that are like really fired up and it's a good thing that people are out there willing to get in the street and everything like that. But we also don't want everyone on the left to like get 
beaten to death. You right. know what I mean? Like, fuck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, right. to put a fine point on it, you know? Yeah. And I'm not saying this in a way like, oh, back in the day before Trump, it was all fine. <laughs> look, this is one of the areas where shit has been, I mean, where rhetoric is people are emboldened. And again, I don't want to, it's not like I'm okay with the system before Trump, obviously. And Obama, right. people who protested Freddie Gray's murder thugs. I mean, but th- this is a new, there is a slightly new era, I think, in, in this particular yeah. arena. And I do think some of it has to do with like this confluence of yeah. both the George Floyd stuff, Trump. And then also, you know, I do think that like there's a the powerlessness, like after the Bernie thing, I really do think that like the left was kind of united. And I think people after that, like it's not but it's not so much that it's like, oh, Bernie didn't win and I'm going to burn things down more like there's no hope for like right. left politics yeah. at the national level, like till a long time. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yes. No, we're not being like, oh, like, uh, oh, you poor babies, these spoiled breasts. They didn't get Bernie. And now no, that's not. No, what no. It, it's more like that people didn't get Bernie and they're like, that was the only hope. Sorry, yeah, exactly. I keep talking over you. No, no, no. It's not. It's fun. No, I totally yeah. agree with what you're saying. And it is it is funny how you can say the same. It's like with editing. You can say the same thing or you show the same thing, but like in a different way. So it has very different meaning. Like you could literally say the same thing. Like it's because Bernie. Bernie didn't win, and so people are angry. Angry. It's correlation is not causation. You know what I mean? It's like Bernie was the big shot for everybody, and now we're mad, just as mad as we were before, but there's also no potential shot. There's no way out either, you know? Like, when it was Bernie, we were all fired up, but we were, like, going, knocking doors and shit like that. And now it's like, what the fuck? And it kind of reminds me of where I was trying to get to this a little bit earlier, but like the whole thing about like who's like there's so much moralism and morality in conversations and like why like you know we actually the ideal thing is to not wait to blame the Trump voter and find out why, but to try to find out why people are considering voting for Trump and why people are considering staying home. Yeah. Like that is something that I do think we need to do. And again, like People are just so there. I guess it comes from powerlessness. The, a lot of the signaling stuff comes from powerlessness and rage. Yeah. Um, and look, even even like people will complain about fucking cancel culture so much or whatever. And it's like, I don't really I don't think that this thing, it really affects people outside of media that much or whatever. But like even the cancel culture that people are upset about too has to do with like like feeling powerless and like what can we actually affect like all i can do is go online and get mad like somebody said something fucked up that i hate like i'm at least gonna fucking post that i'm mad about that you know what i mean like it just is so much has to do with like how we just have no control over you know our lives in america yeah oops yeah, we need to actually try to figure that out. And it's tempting to hate. Like for me, I'm much more tempted to hate like centrist Dems than Trump voters just yeah. because I have a remote like expect. I mean, because I think that they're more I think that centrist Dems are less redeemable than Trump voters. I do. I think I, mean, in under, I, I think in in certain cases. 
I think that, like, to me, the way it is, is I'm like, these Democrats should know better. These Democrats should know better. And some of the Republicans are too far gone. If we're talking about, like, Trump voters, I don't think that they're too far gone. But some of right. the, like, GOP politicians and, like, your Mitch McConnells and stuff like that, like, that is just, it's, like, outside of the realm of possibility. Like, if we're, so if we're talking about, like, Republican politicians, I'm like... Oh, no. Sorry. I, I mean, I'm and sorry, I should tr- clarify that when I say centrist Dems, I don't mean the uh, elected officials. I oh. mean, the yeah, look, sorry, I, 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 it's like but it's like disappointing. It's like I can find, you know, I've talked to Trump people. I've talked to people that vote for Trump. You know, my wife's yeah. relatives have voted for Trump and you'll yeah. find things that you can like identify with about it. Yeah. Some of it is not like I've said before about Trump. It's like he went around the country, you know, diagnosing the problems and then offering the wrong solutions like Democrats. Democrats like to go around and say there are no problems like Trump at the very least is like these are problems. The the solution is Mexicans are doing the job. That's not correct. You know what I mean? But at the very least, people like are, you know, when you talk to someone and they're like, I've seen cities like fall to ruin because of the opioid epidemic, like liberals will be like, well, that's not really happening. You know, like Republicans will be like, it is happening and it's because of Antifa and the Mexicans and all this shit, you know. Like it is happening, and it's because of corporate greed. Exactly, and corporate greed, and yeah, yeah exactly. Pharmaceuticals, whatever, and that's why whenever people were like try to use that as a as a as a talking point against Sanders, that he that basically what he said resonated with would be or or Trump voters. It's like you're literally you're literally defining electability. Like yes. your argument against Sanders is actually a case for why he's good. Right. Yeah. I look, I, that is the thing is that like, you know, when they would be mad about like that, you know, people, he goes on fucking what's it called Rogan and like, you know, that, and and it's like, oh, so you're being mad that he appeals to people that you find like unappealing. You know what I mean? That you don't like, you know? And also let's be real. He's, you're mad that he's going on a show that Warren and Biden get on. Yeah. Yeah. So by the way, we we were, you know, I know you sent me this clip or whatever, and I was just thinking about this with regard to the Rogan stuff. All these fucking people have been on uh, uh, have been on Mar. You know what I mean? And Mar like and again, I don't really care that much about hypocrisy and I don't care about like trying to show people like, oh, but you do this and you do that or whatever. But I'm like, it is fucking annoying at the very least. (laughs) Hypocrisy has I mean, the, the, the thing with hypocrisy is that. Trump people don't care about it. That's what's so frustrating about it. It's like, I don't mean, it's like Trump's brand does not require any discipline in this area. So when Trump's kids are given jobs and get to break the law, that's like, oh yeah, Trump's going to Trump. Like, I don't think anyone likes Trump is going to be like, "Mm, I didn't realize that part was part of the deal. Like, that's not the Trump I fell in love with. Just like when Trump gets really mad at Trump because after working with him, it's like, what about the literally the only thing that Trump that like Bolton doesn't like about Trump is that he's what at all better than Bolton. Oh, I and mean, he, frankly, he doesn't Bolton doesn't like Trump because he like didn't get us into World I, War Three with Iran. I know. <laughs> I know. He's like, it, it, what? Yeah. So but it's like. But Biden sells that he's a middle class guy who fights for the 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 little man, you know, and stands up to the bullies and isn't corrupt. So I'm not saying they're the same. I'm not saying Hunter Biden is the same as those those oh those five. What did we call them with Max Blumenthal? That Donald Eric Trump looks like five old like a dead (laughs) man or something. Um, But but anyways, let's so yeah, let's watch. um, Let's watch. Can we just quickly watch this uh, Bill Maher thing that everyone's talking about? Yeah. All right. 
that was a great chat by the way i'll i think there's a lot of he's very interesting and i got i think this is the episode where i kind of got started like what the fuck are we going to do and you're a historian who's written a lot of books so a little talk about i got a little amy goodman okay talk about all right let me screen share oh i can't i do that too all right Make sure I did um, audio. Okay. All right, let's watch this. This is this guy's on fire. Ibrahim uh, always has these great clips that he finds. Okay. Can you hear? Yeah, it seems great. Court hears oral arguments to overturn Obamacare on November 10th. Once this new judge. Oops, sorry. I'd stay in there. <laughs> the Supreme Court hears oral arguments to overturn Obamacare on November 10th. Once this new justice is seated, Obamacare is likely gone. And after that, Roe versus Wade. So I hope you enjoy carrying your rape baby to term. You can name it Jill Stein. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Ooh. first of all, this smugness and like satisfaction, which he derives from saying that is problematic, let's say. Yes. Uh, and yeah, so you're gonna name your baby your rape. He wants you to name your rape baby Jill Stein. Okay. I mean, I I not to toot my own horn, but I did suggest you could also name your rape baby Joe Biden, Clarence Thomas, because <laughs> I didn't Clarence Thomas get onto the court. And I'm not downplaying the significance of this. I'm just saying, if you want to be angry at people, yeah, who else could they name? So so okay, it's 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 Jill Stein's fault. Yeah. Somehow, even though she's not running right now. Not sure how that works. You could probably also, I'm sure they'd be happy with you naming the baby Susan Sarandon, right? <laughs> Susan Sarandon. Uh, what, what, what could I, what am I going to name the baby? Uh, I, I, first of all, you know, it's just a disgusting thing, you know, you know, number one, the thing that actually is fucked up about it, you know, is that there are currently people in the country that have to like carry yeah. rape babies to term and shit like that. Like today, you know what I mean? Like before and even in 2015 when Jill Stein, you know, fucking was running, you know what I mean? Like it's, you know, uh, um, secondly, you know, I, I was thinking about this today, you know, um, uh, because I was thinking about Amy Siskind and how she like, you know, was in the fucking group that helped draft Sarah Palin or whatever. Like I was thinking back, you know, this right. Like when she when she, you know, when she was in that group, she they helped draft Sarah Palin and then ended up, you know, that was the the nominee or whatever. So I'm like, if we really want to do this, if you really want to go start going back through all the elections and say whose fault it is or whatever. I'm like, it really, really is the Pumas who set us on the they suggested fucking Sarah palin without knowing anything about her like just knowing that she was a woman in you know uh alaska so if we really 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 want to get into it i think i think it's hillary clinton 2008 voters who are at fault you know it's funny you said that jack and let me tell you why it's funny you said that because i had an interaction with them back in 2008 pumas i never shared this uh yeah. i was walking in denver it was at the dnc 
I was walking with um, Megan Carpentier and Spencer Ackerman, and I was wearing an Obama for President camo hat. We ran into um, Giuliani, who I got my photo taken with, and we also wow. ran into Obama's. And I'm just going to play the video. I don't know if I've ever played this before. Wow. Uh, hold on. Let me, let me see if I can. And at the end, I say something. Well, I'll explain that in a second. Okay. I was already on the hunt on the on the Puma Prowl. Okay. Am I screen sharing? Yep. Policy it never has been. It's something okay, the Democratic Party used to be against, and now you have a, 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 a presumed nominee of the Democratic. And by the way, Pumas, by the way, were, they stood for something else, maybe, but they were like party unity, my ass. And they were Hillary people who allegedly Hillary people who were refusing to support Obama. Right. Right. Yeah. Party saying that as a president, he should have the power to spy on Americans right. without a warrant. That's, 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 that's against our so, constitution. Would you vote for McCain it's against everything that the people that founded this country fought for. Well, are you, would you vote for McCain? I probably will vote for John McCain. Yep. And how much of a Democrat were you before the Hillary Clinton? So tell me what <laughs> does it more democratic. He's not, he's not the person that disenfranchised, well, advocated disenfranchised voters and, and benefiting from election fraud. That's what John McCain is. That's well, what Obama is. What about what about if he's the party of disenfranchised voters? Wait, 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 we don't vote along party lines. That's right. Oh. We are we, you we, said lifelong Democrat. No, 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 wait, wait. You, you have to uh, try to understand something. There's a difference between being a Democrat real. and being Democratic. That's but right. Oh, wait, wow. Hillary wants you to vote for Obama. No, no, no. Hillary doesn't own my vote either. I own <laughs> it's just a, It's just a Michigan, Florida, Michigan. No, no. It's, you, you're not listening. I'll tell you one more time if you'll let me explain. There's a difference between being a Democrat and being Democrat. I agree with her, but yeah. Hillary doesn't own my vote. John McCain Which doesn't own my vote. Florida, Florida. Michigan. No, it has nothing to do with Florida or Michigan. So where was the... It has to do with I own my vote. Okay, so why... John McCain is an American who served this country, did not get a Yeah, he did. I never heard that. How old are you? All right, so that was uh, a joke I, where... Was, uh, a little know. joke where... Spencer Spencer Ackerman said they, they mentioned that John McCain had served in the army or something. And Spencer Ackerman was like, you should probably talk about that more. And then I said, oh, he did. I didn't know that. And I pretended not to know. OK, that's really we, funny. Was he in World War Two? John McCain was. He was. He was. He was captured by the Vietnamese. Wow. For five years. You should probably talk about that. Oh my God. My God. You were voting for Obama and you don't even know who John McCain is or what he did. I just thought it was like seriously the fact that he doesn't want like birth control to be covered. No, first of all, that's a lie. I would have killed you. Okay, that's a lie. First of all, These second of all, John McCain was a naval officer. But okay, let's say he I don't serve okay. the services, which Mr. Obama did not. Mr. Well, Obama. He was our Mr. Obama. Mr. Obama didn't serve. Right. He could have served in Desert Storm. Yeah, he could have served in Desert Storm. It wasn't as good as Vietnam. Vietnam was really good. <laughs> Obviously, he didn't know very uh, no, much about it
No, honestly, I did know about this. But I think I was being sarcastic. That's all anyone talks about is this being POW. My mom was the first guy to go to jail. And then I, by accident, Say, hold on one second. Let me ask you this. Obama talks about. So I'm really on the She has good boundaries. She doesn't want to talk to sarcastic people who just want to play games, which is fair. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, my mom, instead of saying my mom's boyfriend was the first guy to go to jail for not going to Vietnam, I said my mom was the first guy to not go to, 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 go to jail for not going to Vietnam. But I, I think at that point, that wasn't. They, they weren't listening, really, at that point. Yeah. Because once she realized that I just was sarcastic, I like to make jokes. That's when she, that's her, that's her boundary that no one grows. doesn't care for jokes, not into jokes, <laughs> not into humor. Hillary Clinton doesn't <laughs> own my vote. Obama. <laughs> There's a difference between being, being a Democrat and being democratic. <laughs> I learned so much from her. Oh, well, you know, uh, yeah. You know, the Pumas really were wild, and I think that they're far more to blame than any Jill Stein voter. And you know what I think? Like I said, I was looking through Amy Siskin stuff, and I and as I was like looking through her posts, I was like searching for old Jill Stein stuff. And I remember they're all still mad because of the fucking recount money thing. They're just mad because they all donated a bunch of money because they're idiots, and they were like, this recount is in the they're just stupid. Like you look through people's old posts from right after the election. They're all in love with Jill Stein because she was doing the recount thing. They're just like dumbasses because they like didn't realize that that first of all, that was like not going to like work to begin with. You know what I mean? She didn't scam anybody. That just was never going to work. You know what I mean? It was just not like a plan that made any sense. And recounts don't do anything in America, you know, <laughs> although it's like I was I was I did think like. If Trump was this existential, I mean, it kind of reminded me of the Gore thing. It's like no one pretended Bush was an existential threat, though, but he was. Mm -hmm. uh, but like, you know, he didn't. Why didn't you fight that? Gore didn't fight that because everyone wanted to be polite, like decorum following uh, politicians, even though decorum was violated through the vote for like. Uh, through the through not letting the elections proceed legally, like there was yeah. already, you know. Uh, so there's that. But uh, why didn't Hillary try to fight for a recount? Like, I'm just saying if Trump was this fascist threat, wouldn't you do any every single thing you could? To yeah. Stop it? That's you know, I mean, but I, 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 I ultimately just think that, like, you know, really, they, they, they figured out a fake story afterward about yeah. Russia or whatever. Yeah. But in the reality yeah. of it, like yeah. Hillary knows that like Robbie Mook got it wrong and that's all their stupid fucking little like like if you're talking about like in the days following, like she knows she knew that all her polling was wrong and all their big idea of like, you know, a new way to do polling like was just wrong. You know, like as much as they want to talk about Russia now, like she conceded the election because she like lost the election, you know? Yeah, no, that's true. Right. That's true. Uh, and we know that from that book Shattered, where like over yeah. the, that night they decided they would put it on the um, on the Russian. So uh, but but you were saying that uh, much like Rogan is being or not much like, but Rogan is being people are very angry about Rogan. Right. Yeah. And. No one's that angry about you know, with Bill Maher. I'm like, people will. It's not so much that people are not angry about Bill Maher. It's that the people that pretend to be angry about Joe Rogan, like watch Bill Maher, like because they just have HBO on every Friday. Like, you know what I mean? Like how like boomers, like they're just drinking wine and have Bill Maher on like every week. Like the all the MSNBC people that are like mad about Rogan. First of all, they're not really mad about Rogan to begin with, but they all just absentmindedly watch fucking Bill 
Bill Maher and go on that show too. You know what I mean? It's like, again, hypocrisy just doesn't right. matter. You know, it's like, it just doesn't. Probably not mind that he said that, but there are things that they probably should pretend to care about. Like he said, some really like, well, I mean, he's an anti, he's a, he's an Islamophobe, and you know, he made like an entire documentary about how like Islam's an evil religion and shit. <laughs> and Christianity, right? Yeah. Make them yes, he he that. did he like, did he he did say that they all are evil, but right. there is a lot of like you know, but even that idea is a little strange to be honest with you. Like if you if you're if you're like just saying that like Christianity's messed up right. so that you can be like also these Muslims are pretty fucked up, you know what I mean? It has a different yeah, it has a different uh right. It mean it means different things. Um, yeah. and uh and what what do you say to the people who blame it on on uh Stein? I mean, I don't say anything to them. I don't have anything to say to them anymore. You know what I mean? It's like if you think that Jill's OK, if you, if I was actually going to engage like for real with people that really did think that Jill Stein cost the election, you'd yeah. say that like if every single Jill Stein voter went and voted for Hillary Clinton, you know, you don't let's also assume that Gary Gary Johnson didn't run and it fucking would just end up being the same. You know what I mean? Like it just would end up probably being the same. Um, Hillary Clinton probably would have won if she like went to Wisconsin. You know what I mean? Like that's like way more what it is is she lost states like they they you like Hillary Clinton. You, It's just a way that like the Democrats don't want to blame themselves for their own failures. But the really big deal here is that we might have lost the blue wall potentially forever. You know what I mean? And it becomes very, very difficult for Democrats to win at national politics if you really lose that blue wall. Then you really have to start talking about like winning Texas every election, winning Florida every election. And so I don't give like Jill Stein has nothing to do with the fact that Hillary Clinton, like through basically over 20 years by being associated with NAFTA, by her husband doing NAFTA, the Democrats have lost the blue wall. And so, you know, now things are really hairy and that doesn't have anything to do with Jill Stein. Like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, as right. with most things that, you know, with that Democrat politics, right. Right. I, I, when you think I, it's Jill Stein or Susan Sarandon, think again. Well, but also, you know, as with most things uh, uh, like vile in Democratic politics, it's directly connected to the Clintons. Like the Clintons are the ones who like shattered the blue wall. They like did NAFTA. And then like because Hillary couldn't like ha ha like continence the idea of anyone else ever running, we had to run her in 2016. Nobody wanted it. You know what I mean? It's like it's this two one two punch from the Clintons who like did NAFTA to begin with and then just out of like you know uh, uh, ego had to run again in 2016 you know when the other guy was running against NAFTA yeah Anything else you want to talk about how your week was? Because we didn't really have a lot of time at the top. I, I'm feeling OK. I mean, I'm looking forward. Uh, I am looking forward to this uh, debate. You know what I mean? As oh far God. as things oh, to look yes. forward to, I am looking forward to the debate. Actually, you know, so, OK, so thank you for reminding me. This Tuesday, Matt Taibbi and I are going to be come by, guys, on Tuesday. I'll make a link to it. But Tuesday night, Matt Taibbi and I are going to be doing a drinking game. One oh, of our nice. drinking games where we, you know. And, I'll, and so we'll be doing that. So I will make a uh, a link to that. But also, I, I don't think Matt, as someone who has children um, and is works and does a podcast with people, including myself, um, I don't think he can necessarily do all four. So I would like to just reuse his drinking game, because why not, and play with other people. 
Oh, nice. So maybe not that I should be proposing this to you last minute as to make you <laughs> and Leslie look like, you know, uh, not very big, big gets, which you are. Oh, I just thought of something because we have to do that thing for. Well, I'm just putting this out there. We should maybe for one of the the vice presidential debates or for the another presidential debate, we should do a thing. A Katie Helper yeah, show. I'd be down. Yeah. This, yeah, let's do it. That'd be that'd yeah. be fun. Yeah, it'd be really fun, right? Well, Leslie so, doesn't drink, but I could do a drinking game. Oh, he doesn't drink. He can he can give um hits of he can give some kind of uh drugs to his dog. <laughs> yeah, you can play drinking. Yeah, you maybe don't have to taco. Drink to play drinking him. Yeah. No, um, I will. <laughs> it's gonna be amazing. Yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. So make sure you come to that, and I'll put the link to that and watch the debates with me and Matt on the 29th. It's very fun to watch the debate. It's very fun to watch the debates while drinking. It lets you. I mean, you gotta. You got it's hell. <laughs> For Leslie, I don't think Leslie and everyone. In case you don't know, Leslie is he's been on the show. He's Jack's co-host for uh, he and Jack host struggle session together. I don't think it's safe for Leslie or anyone, honestly, to watch a debate sober. It's just too painful. Uh, you know, I, Leslie. Once I, you know, I, I'll tell you what. I one time we we were gonna do watching the debate on Jack AM, and Leslie was gonna join me. He just bailed last minute because he just legitimately didn't want to watch the debate, and I respect that. I have so much respect for that. He was like, I don't think I want to watch this. <laughs> I mean, it's a hard thing to do. You should get. I'll do it next time. Drinking games make me feel normal. Love you guys. Yeah, that's that's part of why we do it. I mean. I mean, if you you should have suggested to Leslie that he consider taking up a potentially right. very life threatening habit. I mean, I did get Leslie on. He owes it to then. the Republic. So, you there know, you go. So now, so now maybe we'll be okay. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. Um, but thank you guys so much, and thank you, Jack, and uh, yeah, thank you everyone yeah. for coming. Yeah, and um, I will. Uh, oh, cool! Idiots and Chapo were the only way I was able to get through the conventions. Awesome. Everyone subscribe to this. Everyone should also watch uh, Jack's AM Twitch show. Um, and uh, and it's true. Less people remember. Less people voted for left wing Jill Stein than right wing Gary Johnson. Yeah. Uh, also, a good thing to point out is uh, that may be true that I was cheating the game and Matt gets fostered. Um, uh, another thing I would point out. Okay, we can. Yeah, I'll ask. I'll ask uh, uh, Thomas Frank another. But I'm gonna have to give him some timeouts because he gets very shushy and that's not why you're here. To, you're here to watch the debates to hear us respond to them also. Okay. But, um, I do have to have, uh, Thomas Frank on again though. Um, cause his book is so good. The point is I got something, I got my regular show on Wednesday night that I do here with Nando 9 PM. Okay. But before that Tuesday night, this right here with Matt Taibbi drinking game. Of the DNC. And then um, Wednesday evening with Nando. And then come back again next Sunday with uh, with Jack. You get that. So that. There you have it. Yep. There you have it. All right. See you later. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Rate and review. Uh, yeah. Rate and review the show. Subscribe. Uh, please support the show at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Thank you so much to everyone who donated. Um, thank you for being a friend, Jack. Thank you for being a yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, a stand, stand for all that's 
a stan, a stan, a stan, and a, a stan, a stan for all a the stan for everything that's right I'm in the world, and a stan for everything that's good. Yeah, I'm a stan for all things good. <laughs> I like uh, that. Jack, uh, stan for all things good, Allison. No. Yeah. Um. All right. Bye, guys. See you Tuesday night. Later. Bye.